All right, let, let's get into it. I feel like I'm going to say this again. I'll then edit it and see what actually happens. But I'm like, I feel like you have a lot to say, Connor. I'm going to let you talk more this time. Okay. Well, <laughs> All right. We'll see. Oh, here we go. Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast where we look at old anime. Uh, we like to to dig up some old shows, and of course, we are going to be watching Neon Genesis Evangelion. And uh, we are currently discussing episodes one through six, which we already watched, and hopefully, you, dear listener, did. I'm your co-host Neve. I'm joined here by my other co-host Connor. Yeah, I'm also here. And um, yeah. Sometimes I want to just not say your name and see what will happen, but I know what will happen. Yeah, you so, will, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like we've been over this. Yeah, <laughs> just what you know. Encourage me to to dethrone you. <laughs> oh, it'll be great when people get to the the post theme song for this episode, and now they understand what that was about. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, I, I feel like we can just get into it unless you want to say anything about the series in general. I feel like we just said a bunch because we just recorded the intro to the the um, intro to Evangelion. So yeah, this time I made sure to put all of my like general prefatory comments in the intro episode. Which who would have thought? Was, like it's yeah. a great place to put this. Yeah. We actually, I didn't put on here. Do you want to do the the first synopsis or me, and then we can alternate? Um, We're just doing this live, folks. I think it, this is written in your voice, and for for reasons, I think it's better if you if you are okay. the one who who delivers this. It's good too because I have like jokes planned for when we do episodes three and four that I can then like interject with while you're doing it. So this works. Great, um, perfect. So. Uh, the one thing I will say here, we're kind of dividing it up. So we're going to talk about episode one and two together, episode three and four together, and then episode five and six together. Especially at this point, like for these six episodes, the show will set things up and then kind of resolve them in the next episode. And then like, there'll kind of be a time skip and then 
here we go again. Especially at this point, the show's kind of in, like, the Monster of the Week format, except it's, like, the Monster of the Every Other Week, sort of. So, I'm kind of, like, the are, we're breaking it down basically by the three angels that we've encountered so far, um, as well as the, like, thematic stuff that happens around it. So, uh, episode one and two. It is 2015 AD, and mysterious beings, kaiju called angels are attacking japan after an attack event 15 years ago called the second impact i forget when they first even mentioned the second impact i know that it comes up in like episode three or i think mm-hmm. but i feel like there's some like brief mentions of the second impact even in these first two episodes uh, a lot of it is vague and weird and yeah theme. we we see this like lumbering angel i i've been debating on whether or not to like say the names of the angels because they don't actually come up in the show i don't think unless i somehow missed it when i was watching not Um, yet at least yeah i i think some of them do get named i'm gonna like say them here just in case you're watching or you're listening and you're not watching along and you're like i want to look up this design one thing is just sometimes be aware that like you might encounter spoilers if you're doing this so yeah, uh, but the first angel here is called Satchiel, and it's like this. It has a very like skeletal, like white things that are on like a weird black body. Um, so like there's kind of like a rib cage that's going around this like weird gem-like core or orb in its chest. Um, it has like very broad shoulders that have these huge bone-like shoulder pads on them it has like its head looks like a bird skull and also there's like some weird like head underneath the head that happens and then it's got like these weird like almost like claw game hands that are like the same white bony stuff and then these like short beams of light come out of its hands um yeah yeah um and it's almost like a I forget what they're called, but, like, there's a a thing that they use for, like, slaughterhouses, where it's essentially a gun, but it just, like... Cattle gun. uh, uh, Yeah, like, the the rod comes out and then, like, comes back in. Like, it doesn't, like, shoot a bullet. It's, like, a, like, rod that, like, quickly moves out, but then, like, Mm -hmm. is still attached. Um, These, like, short hand beam things, like, I think that's the closest I could describe them as. And it's, like, you know... It's a kaiju. It's going through, attacking the city. We're watching these military forces that are just throwing weapons ineffectually against this angel. And meanwhile, Shinji Akari is waiting at a phone booth, I think, like a, a public phone booth, um, to be picked up by Misato Katsuragi, a.k.a. me. Uh, so I'm late. Uh, I eventually meet up with Shinji, and we drive through the city as the angel attacks. Uh, so there's like you know, various shots of like missiles flying overhead. There's a part where they use an N2 bomb, which there's a lot of like this show throwing out the names of things and then not like fully explaining like what is an N2 bomb, but it's some sort of super powerful. Like, I think it's kind of implied to be like, it's a nuke, but that maybe doesn't have the same like radiation fallout or something, but it's like that level of like destructive power. And they drop this on the angel and there's like the huge blast. It overturns their car. Like Shinji and Misato have to, to push it back over so that they can drive and it's all like beat up. And, you know, even the, the N2 mom, uh, N2 
bomb fails to kill the angel. Um, we get the shot of it emerging from the smoke blast with like, you know, the silhouette, this like lumbering monster figure. And with all of these traditional weapons having failed, the UN finally authorizes the use of the Evangelion, which is a giant mech designed to fight and kill angels. Misato and Shinji arrive, and it's revealed that Shinji has been summoned by his father, Gendo Ikari, in order to pilot Ava Unit 1. Um, Shinji initially refuses, and Gendo orders that they wheel out an injured Rei Ayanami, who I believe was, like, briefly fighting the angel earlier, so presumably was just injured in the fight. Um, she's, like, wrapped up in bloody bandages and struggling to get out of the medical stretcher. And Shinji finally agrees to get in the damn robot and pilot it instead of Ray. And the end episode ends as uh, Ava Unit 1, you know, prepares to launch. Um, I forget if they even have it come out or not, but it's, like, right at that moment around, like, oh, it's launching. Here's the, you know, Shinji got in the damn robot. Um, <laughs> so then, next episode, we have the exciting conclusion. Shinji... In his first attempt to pilot the dang thing, trips and is, like, immediately set upon by this angel. It is, like, again, this kind of, like, weird lumbering thing. It, like, grabs one of the Ava's arms and breaks it in this way that feels very organic compared to, like, it appearing to be this robot. And then uh, picks it up by the head and is, like, pounding it, the head, with its weird, like, cattle gun hand thing and eventually like pierces through blood splurting out of the eye of the Evangelion and also of the back of the head so that's weird um, <laughs> and then suddenly Shinji wakes up in the hospital and is staring at an unfamiliar ceiling which is I forget exactly you know the version that I watched how they translated the title but it's like this idea of the unfamiliar ceiling um, and is discharged me Misato, I decide that it's unacceptable that Shinji's going to live alone because uh, even though it's like unnatural, so there's this conversation that happens between Misato, um, again, me, and Ritsuko, who is my wife, Emily, um, and we're just talking about like, you know, it, it's like sad that it's unnatural for Shinji and his father to live together. And Misato's like, well, it's sad then that he's going to live alone. So basically pulls some strings to have Shinji live with her. We then get some like kind of slice of life, kind of, of like Shinji seeing his new home and basically reacting to Misato's messy bitch lifestyle. She just like, her fridge is full of beer and basically nothing else other than snacks. Um, you know, she has another fridge that has a penguin in it. Um, <laughs> it's... This is the part where I was probably a little bit more of this Misato at one time. I, I now have a child and I can't be this level of messy bitch anymore. Um, <laughs> and is then laying in his bed, looking at yet another unfamiliar ceiling of this bedroom that's supposedly his new home. And then we get this flashback to... Like, the show isn't even fully clear, I think, whether or not he's actually remembering this or if we're just, like, seeing something that he's having, like weird traumatic flashes of um but the actual fight that then happens um so throughout like all of that slice of life stuff you're like wait what the fuck happened to the angel is it like still roaming around did something else kill it um you're kind of giving see... the impression that like shinji they just, is like, like defeated and then they like take him yeah. out 
of the and the angels still like roaming around or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They they never like resolve that something happened to the angel really, and so you're like, is it still roaming? Are they like waiting for something to happen? Did Ray go out and kill it? Who knows? But we see what actually happened was, you know, after the blood splurt from the eye in the back of the head, the Evangelion goes berserk. It's like basically moving like a so it is like a humanoid mech um like extremely humanoid even compared to like gundam one one note i kind of have is that like the design of this could also very clearly be like this would be a uh, an outfit that like a sentai like you know common rider style or like ultraman would be a good comparison because ultraman mm-hmm. gets big to then like fight kaiju but like very clearly like this could also be a uh, a human in armor and you know but it's like getting down on all fours and like pouncing and moving like this like weird wild animal the ava's arm somehow repairs itself um it is no longer broken and is revealed to be organic yeah, it, it is revealed to be organic or something. And, <laughs> like, rips off one of the ribcage bones from the, the angel. As I think first, like, punching the, the like, core, the circular orb gem thing. Um, and then, like, rips off one of the ribcage bones to use as a weapon to stab it, into the core. It also um, rips off the, the angel's arm. Yeah, and just, like, throws it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, yeah, and it, it like honestly is like a, a very intense and brutal fight scene to occur as like the first battle for this mecha anime. Um and again is like very organic and like animalistic. Um it is not about like pointing a gun, it is not even about like using a sword. It is about like ripping pieces off of something and like using its own bones as a weapon. So yeah, basically stabs and breaks the core, and then the angel tries to self-destruct by, like, wrapping around the Ava and exploding, and then we get this, you know, mirroring shot of just as the angel em- emerged from the, like, smoke and, and blast from the N2 bomb, here we see the, the Evangelion emerging from the smoke and blast of the angel, the angel self-destructing to kill monsters we have become monsters. And then the Ava looks at Shinji with its weird flesh eye. <laughs> so, yeah, um, a totally normal and not really intense first two episodes of this show. I kind yeah. of forgot how quickly this show got into, like, the Ava is fucking scary. <laughs> yeah. I thought that they, they revealed that a little later on in the show because we're about to have episodes where it is kind of just, like, robots um there's some stuff that still happens it's a little weird but like even a later scene that we're gonna see of an ava going berserk is like not this level of like in in one way literalizing the there's a major trope in mecha anime and like what is mecha anime about of mechs are bodies um what does it mean to make a weapon that has the like shape of a human body what does it mean to like pilot something that is itself uh, a representation of some sort of idealized human body and right away already in these first two episodes we get like it is a fucking horrifying 
like flesh monster that again the show's not gonna like touch on it in this way for a little bit again but like so who knows maybe this is all just like the weird imagination of shinji i'm gonna spoil this for anyone who's like wondering that like no like literally what we're seeing here is like what the ava is is a weird flesh monster that is like held in armor somehow um and that that armor is like some part of it for who knows what reason i think that gets revealed more later on but yeah it's yeah. it's literally a a body it's a weird humanoid flesh body that's giant and can fight kaiju it's a, <laughs> it's a it is a, our own kaiju that we pilot around to fight kaiju <laughs> so you know where where to even begin um our first synopsis of the series and when you were going through a synopsis i was trying to like imagine myself as someone who has never seen this series before <laughs> and it is the events like just that synopsis is is unbelievable um the amount of just wild shit that happens immediately in this series is truly remarkable. And I say this as like, I've watched a lot of anime now. I've consumed a lot of media and this series is still like in many ways, one of the most like brutal things that I've seen, but bracketing that for a second, I think a lot is set up in these early episodes. In the first instance, like you get a taste of what this universe is like. As the viewer, and if you're not familiar with the series, listening to this synopsis, you're probably able to glean this, but you're instantly cast into like a state of fear and disorientation, which I think is... I hesitate to use the word intentional because it's not always the right word. Um, that is what the series does. This is the nature of the series is to elicit this this effect in you, and it's going to it's going to stay this way for the for the entirety of like this series, and then as we go through um, to, to end of uh, Ava. The other thing is. There's, there's so much to say. Um, I think I'll just go ahead and start with some things that we've hinted at before with regard to, like, what is Ava, like, really doing and what's the point of all of this? So, first of all, Ava is engaging with Gundam uh, in quite a few ways. Um, we fleshed out a lot of, like, the tropes that are inherent in the Gundam series in our discussion of 08th MS team. And I know we alluded to Ava a few times during that, um, during those conversations. Um, but Ava is a series that really um, takes a lot of the material, explicit material from Gundam, as in like the tropes, character types, some of like the themes, but also a lot of what is implied in Gundam. 
and left either like at the margins or under the surface some of the really, really dark material that is not um, always made explicit. So Ava is really like, in my read, is really building on Gundam and in some ways like interrogating it um, by transforming its key elements. Um, first and foremost, it's foregrounding the trauma and the human carnage of a child who's like being forced to pilot a war machine. Early Gundam does some of this, uh, but it's not centralized in the same way, as in like the trauma doesn't become the object of representation itself. In Gundam, the trauma is just part of this like comprehensive world of war that you're presented with. Um, yeah, along with like quotidian slice of life stuff. Just all of the like ins and outs of war are presented in this um, almost on equal footing. So it, it is shown and it is acknowledged. It's perceived, but it's not really fully represented until arguably like the end of First Gundam and um, Gundam Zeta. Um, but even there, it's not done to the same extent. In Ava, the psychological impact and the consequences of like this trauma of a child being forced to pilot a war machine is the main focus um, and permeates the entire series. Um, it really, it, it really is the ground that we start on, and uh, a lot of the other insights and things that happen in Ava arise from this ground. In order to do this, Ava like transposes elements of the Gundam protagonist narrative arc. So even like at the very start of uh, Ava, they do this really cheeky thing where they have this theme that's like a total Gundam theme. And with a refrain of like young boy become a legend, the style of the song, the lyrics, like everything about this theme is so fucking Gundam. <laughs> and uh, I also think that that is intentional because <clears throat> Shinji is the young, like the young boy hero from Gundam in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. But in Gundam, we're. Uh, he, his story is immediately different in Ava. Um, in the early Gundam stuff, it's often like the young boy is prompted by a series of circumstances um, to take this weapon of his own volition. Like Amuro gets in the Gundam and like he doesn't really have to fight. No one's making him, but he like wants to pilot it because he's curious. And then also like his town is getting kind of attacked. So they take the weapon of their own volition and then like, they fight and they're great at it or somehow prodigious. And then like they get slowly like enmeshed in this and deal with the reality of war as time goes on. As a side note, Gun Victory does something a little bit different with this, where like it starts playing with the idea of what happens when the military apparatus like realizes that this is a useful thing that they can exploit. Um, and then they're literally like, yeah, we are seeking child soldiers, but sidebar for if we ever do that. Um, but that point is like literally the first assumption and starting point of Ava where they're like, yeah, deliver us a child so we can like have him pilot this war machine. Yeah. And like, I, I don't think it gets mentioned in this episode, but it's even worth bringing up here of like, I think it's literally the next episode, like episode three where they talk about like 
yeah, the the way it works, like, you know, they have to be 14 years old. That's just like how this works. Like, it's like explicitly named very early on too. that just like, yeah, we have to have children for this. And yeah. there's this whole thing around usually localizations will change it to be like, you know, Shinji is the, what is it? Is Shinji the third child? I think is no, the... he's, he's the second. Okay. Yeah, there's the third child yeah, has not like... yet been delivered. Okay, <laughs> I couldn't remember if they do because there's some stuff where they will like call a character something, and then you're like, wait, what's the second? And then the like second. Well, because this early on in the show also just like loves having threes, so you know, like, yeah, there are multiple <laughs> there are multiple thirds and threes throughout the series um, that we'll we'll continue to get to as we go on, but. You know, the original Japanese is children, like they'll say like the second children, not second child, but still because in Japanese, it's literally just the English word and Japanese doesn't have plurals in the same way we do. So it was probably just some weird naming thing. Anyway, the point here is that like they specifically call the pilots like children or child. Um, And that's like the official like capital, you know, capital S second, capital C child. Yeah. way that they're referring to these these characters so it's like it's very explicit right from the jump yeah and um so again yeah ava again is very like explicitly foregrounding like the fact that these are child soldiers it's also made even more harrowing by the fact that shinji especially in episode one he doesn't know that this is about to happen to him. He has no knowledge of like the Evangelians or anything. He is like a kid who is essentially orphaned, who just is like showing up somewhere because his dad is like telling him to come back. Um, and maybe for some other reasons that maybe we'll discuss, maybe not. But he has no knowledge of like this is what he's getting into, which unlike Amuro in like First Gundam. He has no investment in this war or, like, compelling circumstance. He's just, like, a normal kid. Normal in quotation marks. But normal kid being, like, conscripted into this. Um, Yeah, his only, like, real clear tie here is just that his dad is the one who's, like, doing this project. and But also he hates his dad. Or, like, is estranged with his dad. Yeah. And so there's a poignancy to that as well. Um, of like, you know, he's seeking some sort of family or, or, or whatever. This will be fleshed out later. But we, the viewer, follow Shinji. Like, it's, you know, we see him at the phone booth. So we start with him, like, at the phone booth as a normal kid. Um, and for various reasons, like, the actual point of view of the viewer and shinji's interiority like are often tied together in vacillating ways um throughout the series and i think part of the reason why why that's the case is to emphasize this like trauma and like how jarring how traumatic how abrupt and like just unimaginably like fast this escalation is like that that he goes through. So yeah, Ava really 
sits with the actual pain. <laughs> um, it really makes it a project right off the bat to like brutally, very brutally show you the trauma and the pain of this um, and then to sit with it. And then that is, um, and I mean, we haven't even gotten to the combat yet, which is like even worse, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I can I mean, keep going, I, but. Yeah, uh, I think it's worth like bringing up here as well that like uh, one, you're correct that part of what I think the series is concerned with is like actually sitting with the trauma of these child soldiers um i also think so much of my read on it uh which i alluded to in the intro episode is tied up with gender happening um mm-hmm. and i i think some of the ways that i i'm gonna like call back to my days of being on live journal um this is specifically about fully Cooley, not evangelion but i remember someone getting mad at me when I was talking about like stuff related to Fooly Cooly that what I didn't care that I didn't really care about what is the story of like this alien being Adam whatever whatever like you know there's this whole like aliens happening yeah space pirate king blah 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 that's happening in Fooly Cooly and this person was like that's like what the real story is that they're trying to tell is like this stuff that's happening I'm like no like literally the story they're trying to tell is this is the process of going through puberty as like a teen and trying to figure out sexuality and how you relate to like human beings now that you have sexual desire in a way that you didn't previously Um, and how does that like seep into and color the way that you interact with not only those who you now find yourself desiring, but also like other people in your life who you now realize are also sexual beings in a way that you didn't before, like your father or whatever. Um, And to Mm. me, that's so much of what Fooly Cooly is about. And also that's probably what that show is really about to the people making it because no one's like, what I really want to say is that there's these cool things going on with like a space pirate that's an alien blah 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 like all of that stuff is obviously always being used at least from my perspective as a way to talk about like actual real human things that humans are going through um and this is where like some of it gets muddled with evangelion because i think obviously there are child soldiers and and it's a a thing that people are going through. And I think that I think the show is concerned with, um, obviously there are not child soldiers that are being asked to pilot like body horror mechs in suits of armor that have to kill giant, like Kaiju monsters. And I don't think that like the show is kind of interrogating that, but it, my read on it is that a lot of it is interrogating it from this perspective of like, what are the pressures that we put, um, Like, there is this period when you are a child and you are becoming an adult and you are having to understand how you fit into the world and you are having to grapple with also mental illness, I think is, like, a very key thing to Evangelion here. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, Shinji's mental illness throughout this, that it is using the trauma of these child soldiers who have to pilot Evangelion to talk about things that are, like, stuff that, you know blah, blah, blah. We can talk about our, like, we can debate how much we want to read into 
like the author's intentions. My like short of it is death of the author is real and an important concept, but also I feel like it is often over applied now in ways that often actually like a face. And this is not the case of Anno, but like that. E- I-, I think the problem that we currently have about people being like, ah, yes, this Disney movie is great queer representation and not the uplifting of like actual queer, like queer-led projects talking about queer experiences is because of the misapplication and overapplication of Death of the Author as, like, the primary way that we talk about media. Um, And I think sometimes authors' intentions are important because they work... They do actually work their way into works. And, like, it is hard to talk about Evangelion for me without talking about that Anno was deeply depressed when he was making it, and that is part of what, like, that seeps into this show in ways that you cannot fully extricate from, like, Anno as a person. You you can do it in yeah. some ways, but you can't in others. Um, I, I agree. And I, just by way of agreement, like, I'll just say, I think meaning has something to do with intention. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it, I just want to mark out a space for that to be like, hey, we're not just uncritically applying, like you know, auteur theory or, like, you know, or in- authorial, like, intentionality or whatever. But I'm not, like, I, I think it's okay to discuss it, you know? Um, yeah. And okay to make that part of, like, the reading. Yeah, I feel like often it has gotten to this point where people are, will be like, I don't give a fuck what the author said because death of the author. And sometimes I'm like, but actually sometimes it is useful for, like, reading and understanding a work, especially when, like, you are trying to unpack something that is present in the work and you are trying to like figure out where is this even coming from? I think this also comes up a lot with like, we're talking about anime and I think also sometimes there are readings of things from other cultures that like, because of this death of the author approach, ignore any kind of actual cultural specificity that might be happening in the work that is also an important thing to take into consideration. This is something I'll talk about more when we talk about like, how are the ways that like young girls are sexualized in anime? Um, I think the, the cultural. So I guess I'll like quickly bring it up here of um, there's this essay called Misara Hibari and the girl star in post-war Japanese cinema. Um, It's specifically about this famous female. So, at this point, I think she's mostly known for her adult work as, like, basically an Enka singer, but she was also this, like, girl star starting from when she was, like, 10, basically, I think. I forget exactly her age. And it's kind of looking at, like, what were her... What was the the early images of her as a child and then, like, a teen girl? And how does that factor into the Japanese understanding of, like young women within Japan. And I think it is an incredibly important, um, like I, I, I have found that essay very important for understanding what happens with sexualization of young girls in anime, because it is not that it, it excuses it in any way, but I think it provides important context beyond just the rant that I already had with Gundam about like, (laughs) Yeah, Kiki and how this stuff often is appearing in a certain way because it is a show that is aimed towards a young male audience. And again, 
when I first watched the show in high school and I was literally the exact same age as Ray Ayanami, I was attracted to Ray Ayanami and that was like the sexualization that was happening there did not strike me in any way as weird because I was a teen who was having feelings about a character who was a teen and that like those feelings are appropriate as things that teens are having having and what becomes weird is when you realize that it is like adult men who are creating this show and also the way that those like sexualized teen girls continue to be sold and marketed towards also adult often male audiences um and that's like where things get weirder and so i think that also this essay does really important work of unpacking like okay first there's like this thing that exists within stuff that's aimed towards like a shonen audience. I'm going to briefly like the essay briefly touches on it and then says, but I'm specifically going to be talking about this film star who had a broader appeal and how she was sexualized when she was very young. So Misori Hibari was uh, basically like when she was 10, she was doing impersonations of uh, like adult female musicians. And she would be, she was very good at impersonating people but then she's impersonating these people who are singing songs that are talking about like prostitution and other things that are happening. And so she is impersonating the sexualization of an adult woman, but doing it as a child, which then like is implying some level of child prostitution or weird thing that's going on with young girls and like the sexualization of young girls and how that was in some way scandalous in Japan and how that was also coming out of this being post-war Japan uh, Japan was being occupied by the U.S. There is a high degree of um, like or there was perceived at least to be a significant issue with like rape and things that was occurring with U.S. soldiers who are stationed in Japan and were like abusing people in Japan um, because war is fucking awful. And like a response that the Japanese government had then was legalizing prostitution, which included fairly young girls and legalizing it in a way that was specifically like, if we offer legal prostitution, we can do it within this framework of sex work where it is then like, hopefully going to lessen regulated uh, or whatever. Yeah. It well, as one is going to be regulated, but then we'll also be able to lessen like, instances of attacks and rape because now it is like within the context of an actual occupation that people are having and that it is like something that someone is choosing to some degree you know there can be arguments about like how much would choosing to be a prostitute especially at some of those like those ages like to be a sex worker how much of that was like coercive based on economic systems and blah 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 um i think that's like i mean there, there's the galaxy brain thing of like the the small brain sex work is sex and sex is bad and so like sex work is bad then uh like getting larger brain the sex work and uh or no it's sex work is work no i forget exactly what it it's like sex work is the the whole point is that it like goes <laughs> to yeah i think it starts with uh sex work is uh the, the end joke is that, like, the first one is, um, yeah, I think it's, like, sex work is sex and sex is bad. Sex work is work and work is good. Um, sex work is sex and, or no, sex work is sex and sex is good. Sex work is work and work is good. And then the final one is, 
um, sex work is work and work is bad. And it's like, yes, all capitalist systems have like exploitation stuff around labor. And it's weird to single out sex work as a specific, like, this is the place where it is bad and not that like coercive systems of employment are like at their nature issues and that actually there can be valid forms of sex work. Um, so anyway, like I want to like put that out here very quickly because I'm talking about sex work stuff. <laughs> um, I am pro sex worker rights. I don't think you can be like trans liberationist and think that sex work should be outlawed and everything. Like, I think there are people who have to do that work. I think we need to lessen like the coercive systems that will force people into that work and that will provide people other options to do other things. I think there will still be people who will choose sex work and those people deserve rights and like safety and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, total tangent. The whole thing here is a lot of current understandings within Japan, broadly culturally outside of like the narrow otaku, which is what often gets exported to the US around the stuff. A lot of the broader Japanese understandings of the sexualization of young girls is to some degree still wrapped up in this system where the prostitution or the like the selling of sex by young girls was legalized by the Japanese government as a way to deal with the occupation and the rapes that were occurring from U.S. soldiers who were stationed in Japan against women and trying to find some sort of solution to it. And there's lots of debate thing that happened about like, how did that, was that, how did that decision even come about within Japan? Was that already leaning on like certain ideas about women that existed in Japan, blah, blah, blah. Um, the article will get into a lot of that stuff more deeply, but I think like, I want to put here more explicitly than I even did with the Kiki stuff that when we are especially talking about the sexualization of young girls in things like this, where it is talking about like the traumas of war, I think it is, it is important to have the cultural understanding that when Japan is often talking about this, especially in these contexts, there's a certain amount of them hearkening to an actual history that they had with like child prostitution or child sex work that was specifically tied to them being occupied by the U S and the way that the U S like um, controlled and used Japan in many ways. And I think that often gets lost in the like very narrow understanding of what is happening with sexualized young women in anime and I think having that broader context is also important because I think we also need to then think about like, why is it that this form of anime is so often uh, exported to the West? And I think some of it is that like, there is still this perception of like the West wants this from Japan, that there is like a weird interrelation happening between the U S and Japan about stuff around. Yeah, like exploitation and specifically around like the Lolita, like Lolicon stuff that a lot of conversations that I see about it do not actually take into context, like take into consideration that full context and make it about something that I think often like is deeply exoticizing of Japan as like a place that is either bad because it thinks that this is okay or a place that's like great because they have this like greater freedom. That's the like super bullshit creepy read that some otaku <laughs> has. Libertarian but like, 
Yeah. But like <laughs> all of this is within a broader context of what does how, how has Japan understood and seen like the young woman or the the young girl within their own culture and how has that been a a battleground for the like national identity as a whole and how it relates to its relations with the United States as like the primary global hegemony that it has dealt with since world war two in some way or another, including like a lengthy period of occupation. Um, and any conversation that has to like, for me, any conversation about that has to then grapple with the fact that, as I mentioned, when we were talking about with Kiki, like, there's so much U.S. porn that is about schoolgirls, like specifically Catholic schoolgirls get sexualized a lot. And a lot of the porn around it will obviously be adult actresses who are wearing these these uniforms. And yet this is still like a form of a sexualization of young women. And there are broader issues around like the way that especially black and brown girls are even when they're very young or highly sexualized and also are not treated the same way or protected in the same way when they experience abuse or rape, because it is like, Oh, there's this like expectation that that's something that they're seeking because racism. And so I think like it is so hard to fully disentangle what is like this sexualization that happens in anime from like, no, this is like actually a, a, a thing that happens in a lot of cultures that happens in us cultures. And that in fact, when it is happening in a Japanese culture, I think it is specifically in dialogue with us culture and with Japan's expectations of what the U S wants from them and what it wants from like their cultural output and their like portrayal of women. And so I highly recommend if people can find this, like article that they seek it out and read it. I actually put it in our Google drive Connor so that you can read it um, because I found it like incredibly illuminating for a lot of this stuff. Um, I know I've gone on a complete like tangent here, but it is um, like, I don't even have a, f- a full final take on it because w- after I read this article, I was like, this is such a, a more complex um problem and such a more complex like situation than I think a lot of dialogue around how do do girls get sexualized in anime ever fully touch on because it is it is a broader thing about like international relations and about the way that various cultures construct the identity of women in general that um it, it makes it very hard for me to just be like oh like I hate when anime sexualizes little girls. Anime's bad. Um, because I'm like, no, like this is happening in anime for like really complex re- reasons that also like significantly implicate the United States and like the uni- United States sexualization of young girls. And the sexualization of young girls in general is a bad thing. But it's also a far more complex thing where it's very hard for me to just be like, Oh, anime. Anime sucks because of this. Um, because I, I think that's that's an oversimplification and a, a an oversimplification uh, oversimplification that for me as an American is offloading a lot of like collective guilt that I should have about what's actually happening in anime. Um, because I think it is actually something that like I, as a person who's a part of American culture, am still like tied up with in in some broader way. So big tangent here um (laughs) no that's gender happening i was gonna do the whole thing about like 
the repeated refrains of Misato asking Shinji, are you a boy? Aren't you a boy? You're a boy. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I was gonna, that was my, that was my second, like, main point, actually. <laughs> um, but jokes aside, like, uh, the tangent, like, it's good. It's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, especially, like, not only for, like, Ava, but, and, and as we progress, like, through Ava, um, but also just in general for discussions of, like, all anime, because, you know, I know this is something we're going to continue to discuss. And to, like, respond immediately to that specifically before I go on to, like, you know, the, the like, the gender happening stuff, um... I think part of this dynamic is like, so you made reference to like the Ava franchise selling toys of like, like Ray, like sexualized toys and stuff. Um, and Asuka. And Asuka. Those two in particular. And um. I'm sure like any, any of the ones that they could get away with. Um, I think this this then strikes at like at at attention with like the reception of something and then like what we think that thing is so or and then also like what we think like a certain series does and then maybe factors that are like external to that series related but external so like I, I'm not going to absolve like Ava the series, like summarily of like any culpability of like the fact that these toys exist or the fact that like I'm sure there's like all kinds of like pornographic stuff, like fanfic pornography about Ava. Yeah, or even but, like. At like probably time. not explicit pornography, but like there are there are pages in the manga that that are splash pages that make me uncomfortable, even when then the that are like this was a splash page that appeared in the magazine before the actual chapter, and here it is republished, and I'm like, you didn't have to draw draw Asuka like that, and yet the actual scene that then happens in the like chapter with Asuka is like, oh, this is actually a really like normal and frank portrayal of the way that like a young girl might like yearn after and expect affection from an adult man who would then be like, no, wait, you're a teen. Um, like yeah. what the fuck are you doing? Um, while at the same time then like, but before the chapter, here's a picture of like Asuka in her underwear. And you're like, um, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah. So like I yeah the the I, show sometimes like wants to have its cake and eat it too, um and the manga as well and I like like the series as a whole does this and it's I I I I under like I agree with you I don't think it fully absolves it the show's doing interesting things and yet like we'll get to it with three and four there's a part where I'm like so much of this would work for me if you just took out this one piece <laughs> yeah and I'm like. This is tying into like a more general 
when at this point we're completely off the rails, but it's cool because this is this is re- like really. You all know and, what you're coming here for. Yeah. So stepping back, like this is a more general thing for me in media. Like I think sometimes, no, not sometimes. Like oftentimes, in order to grapple with like a trope or something toxic whether it's like a trope or like an an idea or like an ideology you kind of have like there's a way of doing that very powerfully that involves using that trope and in media that that successfully like or or mostly successfully or like significantly grapples with like some of this talks like negative stuff it might not be the case that at every single point in the in the duration of that work it is clear that they're like that the work is rejecting or problematizing like that trope if this makes any sense like yeah it's it's if you take a work as a whole and you look at the overall like treatment of the trope and you can draw out like oh, wow, like, I think it's actually, yes, it deploys this trope, but, like, it, we shouldn't just, like, take it on first blush of, like, oh, it deploys this trope, like, why are they using that? Like, that's bad. If you, like, look at it as, a, as like, a unity, as a comprehensive whole, and the logic of the work itself, like, it can often be, like, oh, like, they're deploying that trope in order to, like, problematize it, in the narrative and like do something really interesting, you know, to like challenge it or obliterate it even. And again, like I'm not necessarily, I think Ava is in in a lot of ways, like doing this. I'm not going to posit the degree of success, but when I, I think when we did OHMS team, I said that like the evidence that there are these figures of these sexualized characters, and then it is like a big part of the merchandise of Evangelion is a sign that it failed. I want to now say here on this podcast that I do think that in some ways it failed. And yet also like, if you go read this essay that I'm referring to, like what a monumental task to succeed at. Yeah. Like, did it still make progress? I don't know. And um, also, that's like, that's like something that I think both of us will be watching for is like, mm, let's return to this and think more about how is, how is this actually grappling with this and what is our final outcome from the series at least. And so also I will just like say as a final point, like there, it could be the case. And I think it is sometimes that a piece of media grapples with a certain trope or something like and does it and succeeds but that success may not be like how it's perceived by the audience right like yeah you could have the most like harrowing like problematizing like horrific uh like teardown of this like trend and trope of like and you know young girls being sexualized in anime and like if that is popular enough, people will make porn about it. Like, it doesn't matter yeah. how harrowing or powerful, like, this is. Like, 
there will still be people out there like doing that. And I don't think that that, you know, I, I have to distinguish those two things and be like, what do I think the series did? And then like, are there people who have other interests and want something from the series and are able to like pull that out? Like through a distorted lens, like, okay, but what do I think this series like actually did or achieved? And so, I mean, this, like, this is the whole thing with, I I feel like popularly there's an understanding of war movies as like you watch full metal jacket or you watch apocalypse now, or you watch what's the one where they're like killing space bugs. Oh, starship Um, troopers. Starship Troopers. And like all of those movies are deeply critical of war and like America and American military hegemony. And yet, like, I grew up in like suburban slash rural Michigan where I got heavily recruited by army recruiters. A lot of my classmates got heavily recruited by army recruiters because there was a great deal of poverty where I grew up. And Like, I didn't go, but a lot of my friends did. And I knew people who were Marines and were like, hell yeah, the first part of, like, Full Metal Jacket, what a great representation of boot camp. And I'm like, it, like, and, like, that part ends with a suicide. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? But, like, those war movies have so often, like, start. so many people watch Starship Troopers and are like, this is a badass movie about, like, how cool soldiers are killing bugs. And you're like, no, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Like, this is clearly, like, a super, like, sardonic, like, you know, teardown of, yeah, of, like, American, like, military hegemony. And, like, why the fuck are they even fighting this war is, like, the whole thing. Like, it's so stupid that they're even there. And, yeah, so, like, and we can still watch, like, Full Metal Jacket and be, like, okay, a bunch of military people are like, this movie owns, and also we know that they're stupid for thinking that this movie owns, because, like, this whole thing is about how the military actually doesn't own. Right. Um, so, you know, but then also at the same time, there's that, like, critical discourse of them, like, I, I think it becomes important because there are lots of directors who will now talk about, like, I have apprehensions about trying to make a war movie because I have seen how the military will co-opt like this opposition that I have to it. And so like, I'm almost like, I'm afraid to do it because I feel like it is so easy to fail. And I, I think that happens a lot like kill a kill. I don't know if you've watched kill a kill, but it I is a, an anime series that is like very deeply invested. I think with like, let us look at these tropes of the sexualization of these girls and the like way that fan service is used in anime. And it is trying to interrogate those things. Um, there are some stuff in kill a kill that like super piss me off while at the same time, like I'm glad when the lesbians kiss. So I don't know, maybe it would be a fun one for us to watch at some point because I have incredibly conflicting feelings about that. I do not love that series. In fact, like often I think I hate it. And yet I think it is also a thing that like, there's lots of anime I think that tries to grapple with this theme that we're talking about right now about like the sexualization of young bodies and especially young women. And I think so often we see how that like fails in this other way where it becomes co-opted into this otaku culture of like, aren't these characters hot? And part of my issues with Kill a Kill is how much I think they like, 
my read is they like almost wink to that audience and like play to that audience even at the same time that they are trying to like push against it and i honestly think that evangelion does a better job at pushing against it than something like kill a kill but it is still one of those things of just like it it happens again and again with ava and it's it is this like broader cultural problem and it's also again why i think the conversations around these things need to take into context like what is the full cultural context that is happening here between both the u.s and japan and like how is so much of this rooted into deeper issues of the way that like cultures in general and especially these two cultures understand young women in a way that like i can look at evangelion and appreciate what it's trying to do even while at the same time i'm like it sure is weird that i have two sexualized figures of rei ayanami that i still hold on to because of weird sentimental value about people that i like care about (laughs) yeah um so yeah yeah and there's also yeah yeah, that's we can put a pin in that because it's like that is we could talk about this for like five hours yeah that's a major conversation that's the, going to like be a through line in a lot of what we talk about the um the question bucket where i just rant for an extremely long time about the sexualization of young girls and then you rant for a little bit and then i rant a bunch more <laughs> um yeah that that's something that again like we should continue talking about because then that gets even into the limits of like, like what art can do in a certain context or towards certain objectives, what what it can and can't do. And then also like what it means for like art to exist in like these systems of exploitation where it's like, yeah, yeah. Like you, you created the series and like the series does like X, Y, and Z, but like over your corporate, we're going to sell figure action figures or not at figurines like, and we have a completely different agenda and yeah. yeah. So sometimes I wonder if maybe anime would be better if capitalism didn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever thought about how capitalism actually relates to the sexualization of young girls and the way that it appears in anime anyway, Right into um, the question bucket if you want me to rant about capitalism and the sexualization of young girls. Let's move on. Yes. Um, um, Shinji, so, you're a boy, aren't you? Shinji, <laughs> yes. So um, to rewind the... I mean, when, if you listen to the intro episode, like we warned you that this series is brutal. All of the child soldier stuff, like as you rightly point out, is it's not like really the main point. That is just the grounds, the like basic like grounds of this series that a lot of other stuff like begins to start to be erected on. And one of the things, this series is deeply invested in advancing, I think, some ideas about like humanity and psychology and identity and engages heavily with a lot of concepts of like psychoanalytic theory which i i do want to like talk about because they're relevant here um this is connor's bullshit but first i will say the sexualization of shinji like his psychosexual experience is like is getting closer to like 
the main substance of like what is being accessed through like all of this narrative stuff about like um, child soldiers. Um, watching this again, I was actually really shocked at how explicit and brutal of just like a blow by blow episodes one through six are of like how a young boy becomes like conditioned into like toxic masculinity and it is um almost like because it is because it is so like overt and abusive and extreme it's it's almost as if like someone was just making a textbook of like how to do this but yeah shinji is like through episodes one through six is constantly uh barraged and manipulated with invectives like taunts humiliation uh about how he is how he's not a man um we're not performing masculinity in the correct way because he's afraid and just as a reminder like this is a 14 year old boy who has just been like told that he has to pilot a robot and fight like eldritch monsters <laughs> when he thought he was just like going to visit his dad or something and like understandably is extremely afraid and like hesitant doesn't want to fight and every character in the well not every character everybody from nerve basically like exerts a coordinated uh program of like conditioning to try to manipulate this young boy to like accept his role as a pilot and then to perform as like an effective soldier in killing these killing these like quote unquote monsters and part of that is this goading of when he expresses like fear um he's taunted and said like and he's told that he's not a man every, pretty much every character uh especially misato um engages in this um he is uh conditioned to like hate and bury his weakness uh, i could go you know point by point but it's literally so dense with like this content through the first six episodes um i think it will suffice for me to just like say that this happens and if you're watching you'll be like oh yeah like this is relentless and really intense um yeah i but- i was struck as well rewatching this of just like how many times Misato is just like, aren't you a boy or whatever? And how I feel like when I first watched the show, I did not like fully realize or recognize how much like one of my notes that I had, I didn't put it in like our notes document here, but one of the quick notes that I just wrote down is during the whole scene of like Gendo being like, hey, we want you to pilot this thing, is I wrote down Gendo is bad cop, Misato is good cop. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, like, Misato is also engaged in this, like, everyone is just like, Shinji, get in the fucking robot. There's a monster attacking. And then Misato is like, let me try to appeal to you in this, like, human way of, like... And and 
I think like my read on Misato is that she does not like realize that she's being the good cop in all of these moments. Like I, I think often she is like, I like, I think she wants, I mean, this becomes a tension of like, is Misato having Shinji live with her so that she can like monitor him, blah, 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 like mm-hmm. kind of becomes a thing. But there's so much of Misato seeming to have good intentions about like, Hey, this is a kid and I want to try and take care of this kid and seeming to fail in ways that like, I joked about like Misato. Oh, I'm Misato. I think I'm in a much healthier place than Misato. Um, Part of that joke comes from like, I know that I am very flirty with people. I feel like you haven't gotten the full brunt of this Connor because you're just not really my type. Sorry. Um, But (laughs) like, it, it, it is a part of like, I mean, some of this is that I grew up in a a household that was, like, very open and honest about, like, sex as a normal human thing, um, where I grew up, like, hearing my parents talk about sex or, like, my dad and my opa would, like, ask each other how their sex lives were going when we would, like, go see my grandparents And this was just a normal thing that like people would have conversations about because it was just something that was like, I don't know if it's my family was incredibly European or what, but it was just like, sex is not like a thing that you should feel shameful about was kind of a message that I got a lot as a kid. And it's not like, it's not like it was being done in some like weird way towards me as a child. Like it wasn't like, oh, hey, you're like five. Let me let me like show you these pictures of sex or whatever. But it was just like that sex was a normal part of life. And that it was like, you know, I grew up knowing that my parents had sex. And I think that's a thing that like is a weird realization for a lot of people. Whereas in my family, that was just like, this is what normal life is. And so part of that like manifested as I actually had a period where I had to realize that I would, I was often more open and flirty around people in ways that I don't think people were ready for. And that like, definitely I had some moments where I think I led people on because I did not realize that like my understanding of sex is just a normal thing that people talk about sometimes was actually not normal (laughs) for like American society. Um, And I say all this to be like, I joke about how I'm Misato because Misato like seems to be flirty with a lot of people. And that is just like a style of humor that I have with certain people where I like feel that closeness and that intimacy in ways where it might come up. And again, sorry, Connor, you're not my type. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You didn't have to tell me twice. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, when I say at the beginning, people will hear this at the end of the episode where I'm like, I'm a podcast switch and you're a podcast bottom. That's still like factoring into this, this way that I talk about things and like engage with this material. But like in many ways, I think Misato is like part of me sees myself in Misato because I read Misato as someone who is like trying to take on some sort of motherhood or like, let me, let me be some sort of like positive adult figure for this child. And yet, and as a one, like, I think just motherhood in general, you know, I have a child is like a difficult thing. It, 
it, it is very hard. Um, feelings of like failing to be a good mother is very common in general. And I think is also intensified for me as a trans woman where I also get like messaging from society about like what trans women can be that further intensifies things. And so part of me like identifies with certain ways that I think Misato is like trying to be a caring adult to this child and failing. But also I think I do it much better than Misato. So it's also kind of nice to watch it and be like, oh yeah, but I know not to hit on the child. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know to like not say that the child, aren't you a boy? If he's like feeling sad or whatever, you know, like I, I have a part of it being trans. I actually have like a greater understanding of, um, like it's important to just validate this child's feelings and like, let the child have agency over how they identify themselves and things like that to like the extent that a child even can start figuring that stuff out, but like providing space for that. And so I think I'm actually, I'm far better than Misato, but that's like part of where this joke is coming from. And part of my read of Misato as being like, I wince every time Misato is like, you're a boy, you should not be crying or what, you know, you're like being a coward. You should be a man, blah, blah, blah. Because I'm just like, honey, please like, (laughs) please like read any gender theory or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and another key difference is you also know to like not make the boy pilot a a war machine and like (laughs) fight eldritch like monstrosities i don't know you you got my child a gundam shirt so i mean what kind of message are you trying to send <laughs> well touche <laughs> um, <laughs> um yeah just just wait for uh the 14th birthday when i when i deliver a truckload of weapons to your house <laughs> um here you go here's your own body horror mech yeah um, so I actually agree with you about Misato. Um, I think, I think she is a complex character, even in the series where like, I, I think I'll probably get into this later. Um, how I view the series, like a characteristic feature is the lack of interiority. But even without that, I think it's, it's pretty clear, like we're given plenty to, uh, see that she's a complex character. I think she's more compromised than like than your than than the reading you advanced. Um, I think that's true. That she is there is a, a, she clearly like has some compassion for Shinji, um, but she's also like never loses sight of her objective. And there's actually this like pattern, this conversational pattern that I observed with Misato, where I think this is really like fleshed out, where she's often, I think it's Ritsuko, she's often talking to, and she'll like, they'll be doing some fucked up shit with Shinji, and like, hey, hurry up, resuscitate him and get him back in the cockpit. And she'll be like, voice an objection of like, oh, like, that's that's so harsh, or, like, whatever. And then Ritsuko will be like, well, like, as you know, like, Shinji has to pilot the war machine. And then Misato will be like, 
Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like it's like she's like you know, it, th- there's this kind of like knee jerk reaction of like oh compassion, but then it's like oh wait no I'm remembering like <laughs> this is who I am also like I'm also part of nerve and our like nerves mission is to do this thing and like my role in this is to be the good cop who is like manipulating Shinji like who, who's who's managing him so that he doesn't completely break down and become unusable yeah there's almost a certain amount of to reference a meme that i know i've retweeted at least once onto our twitter account of the like when they ask me at the war tribunal why i did all the war crimes and then it's just like the like like doing a cute face <laughs> like misato definitely has a certain amount of that vibe um again i think i'm doing a lot better at parenting than misato uh um, yes <laughs> i haven't asked my child to do any war crimes so far um yeah yeah so far like misato at this point in the episodes we've watched is like up to like you know at least two or three i'm at zero so you know doing a lot better yeah not non like totally non-ironically you're a fantastic parent um misato is not so since we are on the subject of misato and her relationship to shinji i also want to quickly like run through um a third major thing <clears throat> that i think is being set up um that is important for like the overall arc um Misato and Shinji's relationship, um, even from the beginning, when she picks him up, she has a, like, again, this good cop demeanor that we've discussed. But there's also this, like, postcard that Shinji has from Misato, where it's, like, her in, like, you know, looking good on the postcard and, like, being like, hey, like, Shinji, like, you know, come visit me and your dad or something. Um, But anyway, like, the point is that the demeanor that is presented to Shinji and that we actually see uh, initially from Misato, we is eventually revealed to be, if not entirely a facade, something that is being, is a, a tool that she is using to to get Shinji from A to B. And this I just cite as one example of what I think the series is doing with respect to like relations between people. In my reading of this series, I think one of the overwhelming themes is alienation as a condition of being human, people being alienated from each other and to some extent from themselves. And this is a world of people um, not only being alienated, um, but also deceiving each other. And it starts right away with Misato, who is a particularly striking example because she's kind of like simultaneously the, the one like ray of light where all this like slice of life stuff is centered around her and Shinji. Um, at least initially, um, she has this like pet penguin, which is like the one like wacky, like funny anime thing that Ava has. Yeah. Um, 
As a note, voiced by the same voice actress who does Ray. <laughs> wow. That is interesting. I don't know how many lines that were like how much the penguin actually vocalizes though throughout. There's anyway, <laughs> not relevant. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, her lifestyle is like played for laughs. You know, it's, you know, she has a fridge and it's like full of beer and instant ramen and whatever. So there's a very like human aspect of her. She seems like this one option, you know, for a human connection for Shinji. And there, um, there's a moment in episode two, I think when, when Shinji, um, it's either when she invites Shinji to live with her or like when he actually like comes back to her apartment where Shinji like literally cries when she's like, Oh, come live with me. I'll take care of you. Yeah. Um, and it's like, Oh my God, like this child is so fucking starved <laughs> for like some morsel of kindness and care that like, even this is just like, like he's crying immediately, like at yeah. this like small offer. But so, you know, all of these things are like centered on Misato and yet the series like at the very by the very same token shows like this other side of her where she is following this directive to like a you know manage shinji get him from point a to point b into the damn robot um and then be like participating in this conditioning quite aggressively with you know in in every in every way that she can um, to like mold him. So yeah, I mean, we have this, this other theme of alienation, like present here very significantly through Masato in this dark kind of duality that's going on. And then also repeatedly through mise-en-scene, basically like the backdrops. I know you had a note in here about, um, how the backdrops are used, the animation makes the animation also makes this point like very vi- vividly portraying people as like alienated um, again and again as like split apart silhouettes in like settings that are just evocative of like isolation and separateness and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, I so, think, like, I think for a lot of people who watch Evangelion as an early anime, like, it feels so striking because, like, I part of my note here, too, is that, like, this is not unusual for anime. Um, Western animation is often focused more on, like, the movement of characters, often across, like, uh, highly static and, like... So much of standard Western animation has, like, an angle that is maintained. And you kind of, like, have a a shot of, like, you know, the front-on camera that might be pointing in, like, a sitcom or something. Especially when we were talking about, like, really mainstream animation. Whereas Japanese animation, like, anime has a much longer history of it being specifically about, like, how are you going to frame an environment and the characters within uh, within it? And more of the production is put into that with the 
like at the expense of the actual movement of the characters or like movement within the frame in like the more like if you look at like steamboat willy right (laughs) it's like far more about like the movement of the character within like a fairly unchanging view like camera angle whereas often anime is far more about like let us do these different framing of shots and then the movement within that shot is less important. Um, so this is like a thing that is not new to anime. And I'm only saying this because I know like lots of people will watch Evangelion and Evangelion, I think does it particularly well and draws out a particular poignancy to the meaning of like the overwhelming environments and the way that these figures often seem small, um, especially like the scale of the Ava is often emphasized here as well we get like the shot of the hand looming as they're like mm-hmm. riding an elevator and then of course the giant like robot head as they're having this conversation um also just the, like there's like a small moment that i loved of i think it's like i forget if it's gendo who like snaps at shinji or shinji snaps back or something but then it like cuts to like oh there's just like crew working in here and just like everyone's like silent and staring at like Oh, there's like, yeah, there's like an argument happening. Um, And that like kind of cutaway is like something that happens in anime. um, And that I think Evangelion is particularly adept at doing in ways that feel poignant, but that also can like become overemphasized as something really unique about Evangelion. Whereas really that I think this is like part of what is the anime style that Evangelion just um, employs fairly well often. So that's my like my note there but um yeah i definitely agree of like really it is used to drive home this alienation um one shot that we haven't even gotten to yet but that i i have often thought about is like an extended conversation that happens between two characters where you're looking at the character's nightstand and like that for some reason that like while this conversation is happening we're like inviting you to look through the character's like what do they have on their nightstand? What are the things that are laid out here? Like has a certain, like hits differently and has a certain thing that from our perspective as like Western audiences often veers more towards like what might happen in art cinema than -hmm. what we would expect from like what we're going to watch on Fox. (laughs) Yeah. There's also um, just to add to that point, like there's a scene um, that stands out to me. I, I mean, there are many, but, when I think it's when Misato picks up Shinji and they're driving home, there's a shot that's almost like from like the lower door of like Misato's side of the car. Like yeah. of the shot is like of Shinji, but it's like the you know, sixty percent of the frame is like her legs, and then the other forty percent is Shinji like looking out the window, and it's like Yeah, this is a shot about like how like Shinji is like thinking about like Misato, how he's like desiring her, but like it's just silence and he's just like looking away. And it's just like, oh yeah, this is like the extent of alienation that is like happening here. Sorry to derail your yeah. very well made point. Well, I'm I'm looking at the clock and how long we've been talking. We should maybe talk about episodes three and four. Do you want to do the synopsis here? Yeah, yeah, I do. 
We love to um, front load these. <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, also, I'm just going to throw in the final scene of episode two where he's like reflecting on this horrific trauma and Misato is like, Shinji, you did, you did an amazing thing today. Like, I'm proud of you. This horrific traumatic thing you had to do is what I value you, what I value you for, and this is how you get validation. Um, yeah. Just so you know, Shinji. It's quite sad. Episodes three and four. Then we <laughs> turn to the happier, uh, the you know, happier days. Yeah, um, fun and cute. <laughs> um, so uh, episode three, um, it begins with Shinji. He's practicing shooting. Um, in the Ava, he's at this point like completely. This is a euphemism, but shell shocked and like detached, and just repeating like I can't remember the exact, but essentially aim and shoot over and over again. Misato, at, as this is going on, Misato and Ritsuko are talking about Shinji. Um, they discuss the Hedgehog's dilemma, which is this like. I think they're referencing it from Freud here, but it's like a little bit older um, than Freud. But this idea of like humans, um, an analogy of humans as hedgehogs, like hedgehogs in winter, they need to gather for warmth, but supposedly they can't get too close because they'll injure each other with their spines. And Ritsuko and uh, Misato, or Ritsuko is like, you know, giving this analogy as it pertains to humans, saying, you know, Shinji's afraid to get too close to to other people, so on and so forth, advancing this analysis of Shinji. We also see um, Shinji, like, I, I don't know if he's in the class at this point, um, but we get a school that's, like, in the affected zone where the nerve, like, city is built underneath. And the teacher is providing some context about uh, the second impact, um, which we learn that event that was alluded to um, in episode one, a uh, meteorite or meteor struck the earth, melted all the ice caps and killed half the world's population. And there was this, you know, huge, uh, you know, world, world changing tragedy. And I guess it's only at the time of the series, it's only been like 15 years, right? Yeah. It makes reference to like, Oh, in only 15 short years, we've, you know, rebuilt everything. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, remember 21 years ago when a meteor hit and melted all of our ice, ice caps? <laughs> yeah, the um, <laughs> uh, more unrealistic timelines here yeah. in these, uh, you know, dystopian Although, anime. The one part that felt really realistic here is them all sitting in class on their laptops. And I'm like, oh, this actually was a correct prediction of what like, <laughs> classrooms might look like. Yeah, they. I, I noticed that too. I was like, wow, they got that like spot on. Yeah, and of course the kids are using it to text in class. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're like they're like school Discord. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, like while the teacher's talking, it it kind of cuts to like this conversation that's happening between uh, students. The two students of note are. Um, uh, Toji Suzuhara, um, whose sister was injured in the combat between uh, in, in the fight that we just saw in the last two episodes, and then Kensuke Aida, uh, who's like his friend. There's like speculation around the class that Shinji might be the Avis pilot, and someone asks him over like class group group chat, 
and he confirms and then they like just mob him basically later on like it cuts to toji um beating up shinji outside of class because toji's sister was injured um, again and he blamed shinji ray disperses the fight by coming to inform shinji that there's another angel attack um and that they have to report to nerve hq there is some there's some stuff between like censorship and like misinformation that civilians are getting um, and what's actually happening. Kensuke convinces Toji to sneak out of the school or it's like the bunker that they're locked down in and watch the fight. Shinji launches in the Eva and does what he was trained to do, uh, point and shoot, and just like continues doing that and covers the angel in smoke, basically. Where whereupon uh, the angel just like chucks, like beats down uh, unit one and throws uh, throws it into the nearby mountains, where Toji and Kensuke happen to like have arrived to watch this fight. Yeah, um, just hand landing perfectly, like right between the fingers. There's the the kids. Um, yeah, yeah. Shinji like observes this and like freaks out understandably misato uh tells shinji to let the classmates into the uh entry plug which we haven't even touched on the anatomy of uh yeah those ava uh, units but there's a weird cylindrical thing that goes into the back of the ava called an entry plug <laughs> yeah and the in the pilot goes inside it filled with yeah. like lcl lcl a weird thing replicating amniotic like, fluid yeah um, which in my like later bullshit, I will make reference to, but, um, so, uh, Shinji, like the class, his, uh, Toji and Kensuke get in the entry plug. Shinji's ordered to retreat and he disobeys, um, repeating, I mustn't run away, um, which is a variation of like what he's been told over and over again like the last two episodes and like bit in a mixture of like panic and fear and primal rage just like charges this angel and in spite of being impaled like stabs it in the core with the vibro knife um, and destroys it toji and kensuke witness shinji like crying after the fight is over understandably Um, And then Shinji doesn't return to school for the days following. Toji is then, like, worried. He tries calling Shinji, but seemingly Shinji doesn't answer. And uh, we we then get, like, Shinji. um, He's been berated by Misato for disobeying orders, so he runs away. And he kind of goes on this, like, Jane era walkabout. Yeah, Mekazawa reflecting on identity (laughs) yeah yeah exactly um we get like lingering shots of him wandering the city aimlessly um riding trains to the end of the line getting lost walking the streets etc um misato starts to become worried eventually shinji like basically it seems like he decides to return and as he's returning to the city he he stumbles upon kensuke playing like army in a field he's pretending he's a gorilla and camping out once again Um, shinji seems to just somehow accidentally get incredibly close to oh here's kensuke (laughs) 
You know, yes. once once being tossed and landing on a mountain with Kensuke right between the fingers of the unit one, and now, oh hey, look, you're just playing here. Yeah, and then yeah, it definitely uh, just a coincidence that bears no analysis, um, and has no relation to anything else in the series. So uh, they talk a little bit, and significantly for the first time in the series, Shinji like seems to have a normal conversation with someone and have some sort of like relief in like yeah a semi-normal conversation again this is not important for the overarching you know uh themes of the series yeah Um, this is just a real throwaway episode yeah (laughs) at the uh but you know the night passes uh in in the morning nerves uh Nerve like arrives their intelligence unit. They take uh, Shinji back, and Masato confronts Shinji, and basically is like reprimanding him. And Shinji is just like has become completely passive, uh, resigned to his fate, and essentially like suicidal. He even says like I don't care if I die, and Masato snaps at him. And uh, then Shinji, like, decides to leave. Okay, you know, I'm done. Like, I'm I'm actually, like, leaving for good. But then at the last moment, like, uh, remembering, well, we can get into this, but he, he, he sees Kensuke and Toji at the train station. They've come to, like, see him off. And they make reference to, like, having empathy for the suffering that he... Um, that he experienced in the in the fight, um, they said like we saw how much you suffered in the Ava, uh, and Shinji like remembers Ray uh, Ray's suffering, and that if he leaves, she's going to have to like do all of this, and decides to stay, and then Misato like ha- you know comes to she's like coming to the train station. And thinks that Shinji's left, but then like sees that he's still there. So, yes, long synopsis. Yeah, and the, the the end there too. Like, I want to have like a quick note here because I think, especially for these two episodes, this like concept of um, and like this greeting of Tadaima and Okairi is like very important. Um, to this episode, if you're watching like the subs, you'll hear them saying the Japanese words here. Tadaima is like, I'm home. And then like Okairi is like, welcome home, basically. But these are, I think more so than in like, you know, English. The, this is like an incredibly important ritual, I think, in Japan that like when you return home, you say Tadaima and it's like a a a ritual that you do upon returning home. And it's a thing that a lot of Japanese people, even if they know that no one is home to respond, Okairi will still say, because it is like an an important thing that you're supposed to say when entering the home. And like, in some ways you're almost saying it to like the thing that you consider home, regardless of whether or not there are even people there. Um, You're still like saying and announcing to the home itself that you're home. And so like when this exchange is happening, I think we can get some of the message of like, oh, this is about like 
Shinji trying to, like, Shinji beginning to now feel like Misato and living with Misato is, like, his new home. But I think they're, I just wanted to highlight the, like, importance of Tadayama and Okairi, like, the importance of saying I'm home and welcome home as something that I think it is, like, more codified, I guess, within Japanese culture as, like, a very big expectation or, like, a very big, like, almost just, like, impulse that people would have in these scenarios that I think, like, is supposed to further heighten the the poignancy of, you know, Shinji standing on the train station hasn't gotten on the train, says Tadaima, and Misato responds. That's, like, that had, specifically Shinji saying that to Misato in that moment where they're not even in the apartment is, like, uh, a thing that, for me, is especially tragic as we've been talking about what's going on with, like, Shinji and Misato and the way that that relationship is actually, like, contributing to the way that Shinji's being pulled into this, like, horrible system. But, like, I I think it is very important for the meaning of this episode that Shinji is specifically saying that about Misato and that it it not being necessarily her apartment, but the, like herself as like this person who has given him some sort of home that again, I think like it's core to me reading this episode and also like how fucking sad it is when you take it in the larger context of what's happening. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I agree. And also like, I, I think that's very important as well. And like, since, since you set that up, I think we can just start like from the end, from the end here. Um, I also read this as when Shinji says this, it not maybe in some sense an affirmation, but also like a resignation, um, because through these episodes, like. This whole like Shinji running away saga, we were given all these like extended sequences of like him on the train and like him wandering out like in the wilderness and the city streets. Um, and it's just made overwhelmingly clear that not, not only is like Shinji alone, but that he has nothing. And like nowhere to go like the only thing that he like truly has at this point are these like exploitative relationships um and he's he's not truly like running away because he realistically has nowhere to run to um he's just kind of like wandering aimlessly um and when like when Misato like comes to retrieve him, he he has already gone through this like the thing that keeps getting him in the like Ava is knowing like it's the thing that gets him in to start with, his like empathy for Ray, um, and knowing that like she will have to do that if like if he doesn't. And I'm also I'm gonna bracket that because this becomes an object of dispute like later on of like why he actually does what he does. But I think like, 
I think a, a lot of that also has to be con- like considered as projection of other characters where like Shinji is motivated by like this knowledge that like Ray is like also a victim of the same shit that's going on to or similar shit that's going on to him. Um, and if he doesn't like do this, then she's going to have to. Um, and I think in episode four, like it's clear that the sequence of events, um, that that is what like prompts him to, to stay because like Koji and Kensuke are like, Oh, you know, it, we know how horrible it was. Like watching you fight that thing, we understand. Like we don't blame you for like wanting to leave. And then Shinji is like, oh, like, no, I'm a coward and I deserve to suffer. And he doesn't say like, because I'm, I'm like forcing Ray to do this instead of me. But I think like given the, the context of the previous episodes, like it seems pretty clear that that's why he's doing it. Yeah. Um, there's even like a scene where they're, talking to him and then like basically the nerve people are pulling Shinji away and he's like because there's that whole thing with like Toji being like I want you to hit me back because I hit you and now I feel like bad about hitting you out because I've seen how you suffer and then like they're pulling Shinji away and he's like I'm the person who deserved to be punched I forget some of this might be me cross-referencing stuff you can be like what the fuck are you talking about, Neve? That doesn't happen. At no, all. that's exactly what I'm okay. thinking of as well. <laughs> because I'm, I'm like, I know some of this stuff gets a little muddled of me reading the manga at the same time. So, but yeah, like, you know, there, there is that like, no, actually, I do deserve the suffering. So, yeah, I'm glad you. I'm also glad that you like said what you did about like. There's also a certain resignation because it. I was trying to get at something and wasn't sure exactly how to say it. And I think that is it of like the whole Tadaima and Okairi being a like codified traditional thing that you say also then further like plays into the, this is an expectation that you have. Again, it's like an expectation of, even if you know, no one else is at home, you still walk in the door and you say Tadaima because that's like what you're supposed to do. And so also this like, I feel like without that being quite as heavy of a cultural expectation, the like that heaviness of that being a cultural expectation further plays into the reading of like what Shinji's doing is just like just choosing to do what is expected of him. Mm-hmm. And that includes saying to Daima because, oh, it is expected of me that I see you as home. Um, that like you're the person who's giving it to me and so I'm going to do this. Um It's also a parallel with uh I think episode two when he like first comes to Misato's home and he says to Daima. Yeah. It's like, there's like, there's even the awkwardness of like, I think he says something that is more like, thank you for having me over or something. And then, yeah, she's like, no, this is your home. And then he's like, Oh, you know, to Daima, like, I'm not used to saying this yet. Um, because I, I don't think of this as home yet. And now it's like, Oh, let me do the thing that I was supposed to do then. Yeah. Um, and also like there's a darker there's a darkness to it in this moment because it's like okay, I'm like I've been pushed to my breaking point by like these conditions and like because I have nowhere to go and because making this choice is going to like 
lead to like Ray suffering. Like I'm I'm choosing to just resign to it. And but to like I'm home. Okay, I'm home. Uh, yeah. In a way that's like there's a progression from the way that like he says it with Musato the first time to like the second time where it's like yeah like I'm I'm trapped and I'm accepting it versus oh yeah like this is my home I'm so like happy that I have a home <laughs> um yeah although I think uh, there is some element of that still like maybe present in the in the interest of time I I want to push us towards like let's talk about some of the the sex stuff that happens in these episodes um that are a little bit more subdued but I want to try out but I also think those might point to some of our discussion for five and six. So I don't know if there's like anything else you want to strongly bring up before we talk about like the movie theater scene and some of these other notes that I have. Uh, no, I think, I think I've actually successfully talked a lot this episode. So yeah, I, I also think we front loaded a, a lot, a lot with episode one and two for like these six episodes in general. <laughs> yeah so um so yeah yeah go for it i think like there are multiple i i want to highlight some stuff here and i think we like we briefly mentioned this maybe when we were talking about episode one and two but i'm gonna like pull a scene from that into here as well of um there's like this austin power scene that happens during this slice of life stuff with misato where uh shinji comes out of the bath and is like there's a penguin um and there's like a beer can in front of his genitals and misato then picks it up and there are toothpicks which of course is playing into like a certain belittling of shinji and like his masculinity that's even happening as a gag like an austin power style here are things in front of genitals gag that is tying into like other things that we've been talking about. I, I bring this up though as well, because it is like something that is calling attention to male nudity. And there's definitely some contrast here with the way that that's portrayed compared to feminine nudity here. But the other thing that like really stood out to me and it's a small moment and I don't even know if it struck you Connor, but when Kensuke and Toji are talking about like, let's try and sneak out of here and go watch the fight. It is like, one, it's just panning like across an endless line of urinals. It's just there are so many urinals in this bathroom. It's incredible. <laughs> the number of urinals. Like literally every person who is like every single person who would be able to use a urinal who is in this bunker could probably all use the urinal at the exact same time. It's the most disturbing part of this dystopia. But then also like it pans to them both peeing, standing by, side by side, and, you know, I'm a trans woman, I I spent time in my youth going into men's bathrooms and knowing the, like, etiquette of that's supposed to be weird. Um, but also, there's, like, this thing of, like, Toji's, like, falling out his pants down where you can just see his butt, and I specifically bring this up because, like, I don't know exactly how intentional this is, but one... You know, I don't know if friend of the podcast Josh is listening to this episode, but like, I think Josh McKenzie of Swin fans would go back and watch Evangelion and be like, oh, I, ha I had a crush on Toji and it's like all of these queer things that are going on with me and the way that like I would have with Ray. And like, 
there is something about seeing Toji's butt, and especially it being in the urinal and him being next to Kensuke, that, like, I watched it this time as someone who now has, like, full context of queer cultural stuff, and I'm like, this is, like, weirdly reminding me of, like, gay male cruising culture stuff that would be happening in bathrooms. Like, the urinals also, like, look dirty in this way that remind me of, like, um, oh my god, I'm totally drawing a blank on... Uh, his name, there's this game designer who does a lot of stuff that's, like, kind of around gay male cruising stuff and, like, even has a game that is about people using urinals. And so, like, some of it is also, like, I don't know, there's just this, like, this presentation of male nudity here that I feel like is rare for a lot of anime and is, I think, part of what's tying into like our read on what's going on with sex and gender here and the way that it's trying to complicate it. Even again, as like seeing Toji's bite here is not presented in, I think the same like fan service way that they might present like Misato's butt as she leans over the table or whatever. And I, I think the like most poignant scene here is one that you have a specific note about here, but I also made note of, which was one of the places that Shinji goes is this movie theater. And it is very much the vibe of every single person in that movie theater is not there to watch a movie. Um, There's like an unhoused person who's using this as like a floor to sleep on. That's like presumably, I mean, I guess it's like endless summer. So I guess cool like a nice cold place to sleep there's some guy who's like 100 the i'm some like i'm here because i'm some middle class middle manager just like stressed out at my job and i just want to go to some place where i can like chain smoke and drink and like not have to think about life or go home to like a family that i hate or something is like the vibe i get from him Mm -hmm. and I I i forget if there are like a few other like you know, obviously Shinji's just here because he's like wandering aimlessly. And then he sees these other teens who are doing what like presumably Shinji should be doing, which is going to a movie with a girl and then making out and not watching the movie. And like, they're the, the two people who are here in this moment who don't seem to be trying to, like, I think it's particularly poignant because Shinji's at this position where in some ways he is far more like the man who is like chain smoking and drinking and just trying to escape from his job and his family than the couple who uh, like teens who are his own age who are here to like make out in the dark and Shinji is like I mean there's so much of this of just like there's something happening and we like I I think it is like strongly implied that like at a certain moment Shinji's just watching these people make out and the the show does not reveal to you Shinji's interiority but there is like I think the way it is presented it, it is so hard for me to not read Shinji as being like this is what I should be doing and instead I'm like these adults who are trying to just like escape the hell of my normal life to like go into a movie theater, even though I don't care what this movie is. So yeah, I know you have notes on this, so I will like, (laughs) maybe you have additional thoughts here, but yeah, I, I think what 
yes to what what you like to your analysis of the scene like yes but i think we might even be at a point where it's like i don't know if shinji can even articulate that to himself yeah um like what you just articulated like i i I don't know if his interiority is him just like is him articulating that to himself um i don't know if he's able to because that is like how far removed he is from not only like the experience that he like should be having that you described of like this is what a normal like you know normal always in scare quotes obviously but like normal childhood like should be like and he's so far removed from that because of everything that's going on um but also like in terms of his relation to like other people which like that in the world of Ava and then also like in the world of psychoanalysis and like IRL is like inescapably also has to do with sex right so like his like his sexual repression and this conditioning that he's going un- undergoing like with relation to his gender is like imbricated with his like overarching alienation from like all other people and like his inability then you know in turn his inability to like have this like you know realize his desire like and have sexual relationship with another person so yeah like not only his like life experience but also just like sexually this is he's just so far away from this and this scene like really again like brings out the distance and the alienation of that so yeah i think you 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 laid it out really well yeah also on the topic of gender and sexual repression I didn't mention this because you did the the synopsis, but the angel here, Shemshell, um, it looks like a penis. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> it, it it looks like a squid, but it also looks like a penis. Um, and it has like weird whip appendages made of again light. Yeah, and Shinji <laughs> Shinji gets impaled by them. Um, yeah. So how far do we want to go with this? Yeah, which just this um, you know brinkmanship. Yeah. Cute. Um, the. Um, really quick, the thing with Toji, I did notice that I, it really struck me because like peeing with like your pants all the way down at like a public urinal is a thing that in my mind, I associate with like very young boys doing. Yeah. There's Um, a certain childishness to it. Yeah. Like that's the only time I've ever seen that like in my life. I can't remember if I did that or not. And I was like, oh, that's what this is. Like, they're trying to emphasize that they're just, like, really young boys. But then I'm like, no, like, I mean, he's 14. Like, he's young, but that's not <laughs> that's not the age that, like, I associate with doing that. So now this is, like, something else going on. If... In keeping with my earlier theory, like... Every shot of nudity in Ava, you can read as, like, being the mind's eye of, like, some other character. 
it that's a theory. So if you want to take that tack with this um, and say like, oh, is this Kensuke like imagining Toji or something in this moment? I think you can do that, but it you know with with all of that said, like I don't really have a a firm reading of this. Yeah, part of it is it just like stuck out, and it was a thing that I wanted to to note here. The other thing I want to just note here is that I searched Google for Toji's butt, Toji Suzahara butt, Toji Suzahara peeing. I still haven't been able to find the <laughs> find the picture. So um, get on that fandom. Uh, like I I was I didn't find any pictures of Toji's butt. This is come on. That's shocking. Um. Anyway. Do we want to move on to episode five and six? Yeah. To yeah, to uh, talk about gender and sexual repression. <laughs> Are, really? Are we going to talk about that? I don't know. That would, um, be, that would be a new, new subject. Um, yeah. Very unexpected for us. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I think um, you're doing shall, the synopsis on this Yeah. One. I'll do the synopsis here. So... Episode five, we start with a flashback to a reinitialization attempt for Ray and Unit Zero. I think, I forget if we've actually seen Unit Zero or not. I think it's been mentioned at least, but the reinitialization here goes wrong. Uh, Ava Unit Zero goes berserk, rejects Ray, rips free from the wall restraints, and is like attacking the observation window. Um, I think there are kind of ways to read what's potentially happening here but my read is potentially trying to attack gendo himself who's like standing at the front of the window trying to be stoic as a thing like smashes in and is trying to kill him i agree um yeah uh i think that there's definitely a certain implication of that here anyways and ray's entry plug is ejected um it's like you know, has ejection rockets, so it like skitters horrifyingly against the ceiling and wall before it crashes down to the ground. Some like bake light, or you know, it's that that uh, ghost fast in the acting shell. Mountain Dew. Yeah, fast acting Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's not quite as Mountain Dew colored, but um, yeah, they they use some fast ma- acting Mountain Dew here to like try and contain the Ava. Also, it like runs out of power. And, um, like, Gendo jumps down and runs out to open the door to the plug to make sure that Ray is okay and burns his hands in the process, um, as well as his glasses fall and break. And, yeah, kind of a, a, a big, like, dramatic moment here. This is also where there was that conversation that I mentioned earlier of, like, Gendo just says Ray. She kind of like gives him a look and a nod, and then he says, I see. And the cause of this incident is determined to be Ray's mental instability, which is kind of remarked upon of, of being like, but she has like no personality. That's weird. Then back in the present, there's a team of scientists that are dissecting the giant penis and uh trying to research the defeated angel. Um 
you know, Gendo appears and has his gloves off and Shinji sees that his father's hands are burned and kind of asks about it. Um, there's some conversation where Ritsuko reveals a little bit about what happened and then also is like, here, come look at some of the data. We found that it's made out of a different matter than humans. Uh, so the angels that light, it's made out of light. No, that, no it's that... like, it's, it's similar to light in that it is a wave in a particle, but we yeah. can't identify like what it is. It's just like, has the same nature. Again, I, I just keep being like, it's light. Uh, good enough and uh yeah so it's something that is like a completely different matter that they can't identify but they do find that it is arranged in a pattern that is 99.89 percent matched to the way that human dna is arranged and i i don't think there's a comment but i think it's only in the manga um about that number uh, so I'm not going to say it here. Anyway. No, um, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, you know, we get multiple scenes of basically Shinji staring at Rei a bunch. So there's the scene that I'm sure we won't talk about because it's not at all interesting to anything we would talk want to talk about. Where it's like basically gym class and the boys are ogling, ogling the girls. And basically they're like, oh, do you have the hots for Rei? you know, like Toji and Kensuke kind of ribbing Shinji about this and Shinji being like, that's not it. We get Shinji staring at Rei and Gendo talking while they're running Ava tests. So like Shinji's in the Ava and is just watching from afar as this conversation happens and he doesn't know what's being said. And it's just like, why is my dad talking to Rei and my Rei talk, like Rei talking to my dad and they're just like looking, talking, yeah, looking happy. And then there's this like kind of slice of life. Haha, Misato can't cook. Uh, oh, also, here's your new ID, Shinji. Um, oh, that reminds me. Like, here's the renewal for Ray. Can you please take it to her? And then Shinji staring at the photo. And again, them being like, oh, you must have the hots for her. Um, so basically Shinji's then tasked with like, oh, here, this is your excuse. Go take the ID. You got the hots for her. Take it to her like before you head to HQ. And Shinji comes, knocks, finds the door is like unlocked and opens it and goes in. Ray is living in some like real Silent Hill shit. It's just <laughs> <laughs> like bloody bandages. Um like literally rust and yeah um kind of terrifying uh finds gendo's broken glasses and i forget if in the show he sees that gendo's name is is like written in it or if that's just um the manga but it is gendo's broken glasses and is putting them on being like are these ayanamis what's going on and ray comes out of the shower seems to not really care at all about her own nudity. I'm sure we won't talk about this scene at all. Um, goes to try and get the glasses back from Shinji. They both fall with Shinji on top of her. And she just like continues to be blase about his entire presence. And is kind of just like, why are you here? And, you know, gets dressed and heads into nerve HQ. Shinji's kind of running along or like tagging along at a distance behind her. Um, one of my favorite shots is just like, from afar here's the train and you can see like ray on one end of the train in a window and shinji on the other end um and 
you know, finally Shinji like catches up and swipes her card being like, here, here's the renewal card. You're, that's why your old card isn't working. And then they're riding the elevator and Shinji's basically finally talks to her in some way where he's like, hey, aren't you afraid of piloting the Ava? And Ray's like, don't you have faith in your father's work? And Shinji's like, no, why would I trust my father? And Ray slaps him. Um, then an angel attacks. It, you know, it's getting towards the end of the episode. It's like, all right, let's launch. You know, Ray can't go out there. Unit Zero still, like, hasn't been synchronized blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, you know, it's got to be unit zero or unit one and Shinji. It launches and Shinji just immediately gets wrecked by the angel's beam, you know, just like full force beam to the chest is just screaming in agony and cut to fly me to the moon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is like such an abrupt cut. Um, often fly me to the moon will come on and you're like this this feels like a a slap in the face in its own way but this is one of the most intense of it where you're just like wow scream right into this huh yeah (laughs) and then yeah episode six um shinji is immediately pulled back the blast like melted basically all of the chest plates but thankfully the ava itself seems to be fine and the angel moves and begins drilling down through the plates of armor that cover the geo front we haven't mentioned this yet there's like an entire city that's under the ground called a geo front and like the buildings are above ground but then can like retract to be below ground and then there's like a weird pyramid that is nerve hq at the bottom of this giant weird underground cavern (laughs) So, yeah, the angel's trying to get there, presumably to Nerve HQ. It, like, seems to be specifically targeting them. I'm sure there's no reason why angels are, like, specifically continuing to come to this one area. You know, it's just an anime. Of course they're all going to Japan. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's (laughs) just Don't question it at all. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just genre tropes. Yeah. there, there would be no other reason why these angels wouldn't be attacking anywhere else on the planet. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, they basically determine that the angel will attack anything with 100% accuracy as soon as it gets in range. Um, and it also has a powerful AT field. Another, Which we haven't also discussed. Yeah, we, we also that. Uh, absolute terror, um, which also there... I always think it's bizarre. So there's a term for the narrow strip of visible flesh between a skirt and if someone's wearing like thigh highs and it's called absolute territory and it comes from Evangelion further evidence that like the fandom interpretation of Evangelion is perhaps at odds with what Evangelion might be trying to say (laughs) about sexuality. Um, But anyway, yeah, they, the AT field, which is, some sort of shield. shield. Yeah. yeah. That's what we know so far. And Misato develops this plan that has an 8.7% chance of success. So high. Um, <laughs> we're really dealing with Grand Lagan numbers here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the, the plan here is basically we're going to get this self-propelling positron rifle. That's this weird experimental prototype weapon that we're like, basically commissioning there's like this scene where they like go and they're like hey we have the paperwork you have to give it to us now and they're like what it's like we don't even really have it yet 
like it's still in pieces and then they're like that's fine um ray can you please like in ava unit zero open up the roof of this building and take (laughs) stuff out be gentle it's it's like delicate machinery yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's a prototype um so yeah they're gonna take this positron rifle and use all of the power in japan the entire electrical grid to power it to get enough energy to try and fire like an extremely powerful beam at the angel pierce through it um shinji will of course be firing because he has a higher synchronization rate um they did successfully reinitialize ray in unit zero but still some instability so she's just tasked with using a shield to protect them which is just like a part of a spaceship hull and i i love the like we are just doing like weird slipshod like pulling pieces together that happens in this episode it's just like a good vibe to me for like this kind of show and you mean like the tactical side yeah well and just the like hey we are fighting weird monsters and we're just like trying to find a solution yeah. and that it just involves, really like, MS team yeah <laughs> um but yeah basically you know Shinji has been in the hospital for a lot of this after being, again, absolutely wrecked uh, at the very end of the previous episode and uh, wakes up in the hospital. Ray meets him like as he's basically awakening and says like, hey, here's the plan. You have to be here at this hour. Like, here's the rundowns I have rundown I have in my notebook. Also, you're naked right now. Please don't come naked. Here's a like plug suit for you. And Shinji being like. Oh, I'm all embarrassed and rage again, just being like, I don't fucking care basically. Or like this, like weird indifference to any sort of nudity that anybody's having. And, uh, you know, there's this moment of them waiting at night outside of the Evangelions for like when the operation is going to start. And, um, they have a little conversation and Ray says goodbye to Shinji before she gets into unit zero for the actual fight, Shinji misses the first shot. Um, it seems to be because the angel fires back and the beams like diffract off of each other and like spiral and go in weird directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like may have hit if the angel wasn't firing back. And then it takes a while to like recharge and reload the gun. And in that amount of time, the angel is able to fire again. Um, the beam it like basically completely melts through the shield and unit zero is heavily damaged before Shinji manages to get that second shot off, uh, shot off and actually kill the angel. Um, and then like his father runs out to the ejected entry plug, you know, opens it up, opens up the, the hatch and checks and sees if Ray is okay. And I actually wrote down a little bit of here of just like, the dialogue here of don't say that you have nothing else. Uh, don't say goodbye when you leave on a mission. It's too sad. Um, and Ray, I forget exactly what she says, but she's like, I don't know what to do. And Shinji's like, why don't you try smiling? And then she smiles. Guys, don't try this at home or on the train or basically anywhere that you see a girl not smiling. It probably isn't going to work and is actually really creepy. Um, I, I kind of buy it in the scene, but the, the way that it factors into, hey, baby, why don't you smile? As, like, a thing guys say the women all the time. Slightly sour some of the otherwise, like, I enjoy this scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, yeah, 
my quick this angel is ramiel which is a octahedron it's just like a weird eight-sided you know two pyramids basically together so it's like this this weird geometric thing moving through the sky um that then has a drill coming out of the bottom of it and has like kind of a line like a horizontal line that the beam seems to come out of that's like a yeah um the design here gets like even cooler for the rebuild stuff but we'll see if we ever do rebuild we can talk about how rad the the redesign for ramiel is (laughs) yeah basically it's like the fourth evolution of porygon yeah Pokemon so anyway that's the the recap i mean it ends it ends with ray smiling and also we got a shot of ray framed against the moon and so this time when fly me to the moon starts playing you're like oh this is actually the complete opposite of like a weird jarring juxtaposition this just feels like it's like a normal thing (laughs) yeah it to like speak on the prior cut to fly me to the moon i know this is a point we've touched on before but i'll just again like point it out here the like brutality of the combat is it somehow continues to escalate like in uh episode five shinji i mean you mentioned him getting wrecked by the beam but it's literally like right as he launches. It's before he can even like move or take an action. He just gets like almost killed instantly. And he's literally like about to be, he's about to like have heart failure and they have to resuscitate him or something. He's like bleeding from the nose. Again, it's just the series is like really not going to let you get out of it without um fully confronting like just how horrific um all of this is yeah Um, like even the final like oh here's the mission we're doing the shots like still involves the like terrifying beam melting through the shield and like severely damaging unit zero and the plug ejecting and everything yeah and um this brings me to another point um, but another thing about like Ava vis-a-vis Gundam that applies like for all of the fights, basically. So like beyond just elevating the psychological trauma of, you know, warfare and children fighting wars, Ava also, in a weird way, shows like has a more like quote unquote realistic presentation of what like warfare and combat it probably is Gundam again for all of its like hard sci-fi realism, which it does have. um, It also has these like idealized dramatic space opera, like duels that are, you know, like we talked about in the eighth MS team, very character driven and, you know, narrative driven characteristic of most other mecha anime. Ava fights on the other hand, are like brawls brutal brawls to the death where they're like five minutes and someone's dead um yeah and shinji like launches into like the field of combat and from the very get-go is scrambling scared out of his mind like whatever plan they had probably goes wrong 
and he, he's literally like fighting with his fists, his fists, and his like ultimate weapon is a knife. Yeah. So like at, at best, this becomes like the shower scene or like the bath scene from Eastern Promises. Like that's the. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like, no, you know, like the most, like, that's like also one of the weird contrasts of this episode is like that they actually like develop any sort of plan and that it involves like, not just like the angel is such a thing that it is a fortress where they can't just be like, I don't know, put the child in the weird, like body horror mech and just like have him rip it apart. And they're like, oh, we actually, I like have to figure something out. And it involves like us cobbling together all of these parts from like different projects and like, you know, having rolling blackouts throughout all of Japan so we can pull enough power to like do a gun to shoot it yeah. <laughs> from afar. Because um, we, we tried the close combat and he like literally almost died instantly. Yeah. Um, and we're like, oh, wait, I guess our normal approach of just like, I don't know, rip its ribs off and stab it isn't going to work here. <laughs> Um, I also want to point out, like, I really want someone to make a meme of the shot where they're like, Shinji, we're entrusting you with all of the electricity in Japan. (laughs) Um, And then I don't know what he says in response. He's probably just like, oh, yes, okay. Um, But someone out there, please make a meme because that is good material. Them saying that, and then it, it cuts to Shinji, and it's the Shinji got drip that's, like, an ongoing meme right now. That would be a really good version. I was thinking of, like... So, <laughs> I was thinking of, like, that, and then, like, cutting to, like, somebody's, like, custom PC build. Or like like a Bitcoin mining like farm yeah. or something. <laughs> um, um, so there you go. I made the meme for you. Um, it, uh, yeah, I'll, let's. Where do, where do we? I feel like there's like a couple things that I want to hit. Do we want to start with the the girls swimming and the boys playing basketball and this whole thing? Yeah, that works. Okay. Yeah, I mean, my like. This is getting into these broader things that we're talking about with the sexualization of, like, these young characters. Especially when I see this scene where, like, it it feels like a very realistic portrayal of puberty. And also, Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel leery. Like, I feel like we don't get, oh, here's some gratuitous shot of, like, these girls in their bathing suits. It is more just like, oh, here are high school girls who are, like in gym wearing bathing suits because they're doing like they're at the swimming pool and we're portraying that like matter of factly and then showing like and then here are boys who are like trying to sneak a peek because you know the pool is like up high on something the the basketball court is like over here and they're like kind of trying to look up and like through the gate at the girls that are sitting near the gate and then the girls being like oh ick like gross they're staring at us blah 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 um a lot of this also reminds me of like probably my favorite gunter grass novel is cat and mouse and that one was also controversial because a lot of it is like here are these different 
teenage characters and then there are parts where they're just like there are there are scenes that are because they are specifically dealing with like that novel deals with weird like teenage sexuality and how it gets tied up into other things that were going on um like has scenes that are like talking about or that are like portraying teen boys talking about like semen and stuff in a way that also felt very matter of fact and not like a a leering sexualization but as like a way that people are going through puberty and are like starting to figure out things about bodies and are like very much fumbling through that and this is like a scene that does it incredibly well and especially in the context of the scene then when we have like raise indifference to his presence when she come or when he comes in and like she comes out of the shower so much of that as well is played in a way where like i can frame it within the same context the one piece that like hits weird is just this fan service like reveal that shinji's hand is on her boob and a specifically the way that like it is framed in, in the way that like a punchline would be framed of like, there are multiple shots where they don't show you where that hand is so that they can then show you like in the final moment that his hand is on her boob. And then like at this moment he realizes it and pulls away. It's still not like some of the worst fan service stuff that might happen, but like that specifically Shinji's hand being on Ray's boob in this moment is one that just like feels unnecessary and that the scene could have still had all the exact same emotional impact of like, Oh no. Like you could possibly even get away the, like the falling and I'm on top of you and stuff, but I could, I would, it's at a level where I'm like, I feel like it's like pushing a little bit too much into some of the fan servicey stuff when so much of it is already working of like her coming out of the shower and just seeing him there and not really caring. And like, her getting dressed and not caring that he's there and Shinji trying to look and not look and like doing the, like I am respectfully not looking <laughs> meme. Mm-hmm. Um, like all of that, like works incredibly well. Um, and this is just one of those scenes where I like, I feel that tension of, I understand so much of what it's doing, but sometimes it is also like pushing in a direction where I'm like, I feel like you still could have like done this without going to this extent. But I don't know. You you might disagree uh, disagree here. Um, but um, this is like this is a part that like really. In general, I I still feel like episode five and six does a lot of this fairly well, and I think it is, like specifically the fall and Shinji's hand on her boob that like. Doesn't that is like pushing towards some other reading of this stuff that. I don't know the show really wants to do, but that like plays into all the, the bad ways that this then just like feeds into the commercialized sexualization of young girls. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think your point is valid and it is hard to like understand or account for like why, why is like the hand on boob thing, a thing that happens when you know when it could have not i think by way of like i'll address that by way of talking generally about what you've brought up like the contrast between these two scenes my read on this is like the 
girls swimming and the boys playing basketball and all of this banter, I agree completely with your reading of that. To me, that is like the couple making out in the movie theater. Um, yeah. It, as like a foil, basically. Whereas, to which we get the contrast of this very abnormal situation between Ray and Shinji. And everything about this scene is like, like every time something like comedic happens in Ava, I'm just like, why? That doesn't make yeah. any sense. But everything about this scene where it's like kind of the slapstick, like he's holding the glasses and I think she like tries to grab them back. And then they're not even really struggling. They just get tangled up or something. And they fall on top of each other. And then also her underwear drawer like falls yeah, out. Which and also feels like gratuitous in a way. Yeah. The, the only way I can account for this and... This is actually kind of what I think is happening. It feels like this is a scene from another type of movie or another type of like show that is like a like comedic coming of age type narrative where, you know, something comical like this would happen between like a young boy and a young girl and it would actually be a joke because it would be a comedy but here kind of like the thing with misato um earlier like this illusory refuge that she's offering like here this it strikes me as ava like gesturing at this ironically um or, or in a way that like in the gesturing it like occludes that that possibility so yeah, it's like it, it is trying to engage with specific tropes and it is trying to use those tropes and and be like that's not what's happening like, yeah and part of me is like i wonder if it would be more effective if it didn't try to use the tropes but i also like especially here can understand it within that context where yeah. it I feel like there's other stuff that's fan servicey in Ava that sometimes hits me a little bit weirder. Whereas like this one, I can, especially how it is situated in so much other stuff that's happening here. I mean, the other thing here is like, especially me watching this now, it's very easy for me to like, I think so much of what is happening here is this weird, like Shinji himself does not fully know and understand why he's fascinated with Ray. And I don't think it is a simple answer of either, oh, he's attracted to her or, oh, he's trying to figure out like, why does, why does my father care about her and not about me in that way? And I'm especially deeply sympathetic to that because as I've mentioned before, I had like, I, when I think back to crushes that I had, I see how that those crushes were often like deeply tangled with me also having feelings about like the expectation of me to be a boy and the at odds with that. And that it was like jealousy intermingled with physical attraction in a way that like a typical straight attraction to a girl probably wouldn't 
be about that. I mean, I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Connor, but I'm like guessing that your first crush, you don't look back on it and go like, let me sort out what part of this was me being attracted to this person. What part of this was like me wishing that I could be like that person. (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah, you'd, you'd be correct. Yeah. And like, uh, again, I like I I can that reading is so easy, and I think it is like intentional here. Of Shinji has this like, I think there is an an attraction, or there is some sort of like awareness of the potential sexual like whatever that's happening. Like I think you can read and it is like a part of what's happening with Shinji of like some degree of crush on Ray. But that is also mingled in with this like this jealousy and this confusion around like who are you? Why do why does my father like you? Why does my why do you get to talk to my father and smile and seem to be having having a like normal happy conversation and I don't have that and like you know and also like you seem so like I think it also then gets tied up into you seem so depressed and like battered and bruised and like is this what my future is and Mm. yet also if this is what my future is does that then mean I get to be closer to my father like if by becoming this is, is that what like grants me intimacy with my father so yeah there's like a there's a bunch of stuff happening here and I really don't think that the answer is one of them is correct and the other ones aren't. I, I think this is most meaningful as sexual attraction gets tangled into these other complex feelings we have about our relationships, not just with the like the person who's the object of that attraction, but with our understanding of like who we are, how we're relating to the world, uh, how we're relating to like other people that we care about, including like our family members. And here it being like this n- incredibly wrought relationship that Shinji has with basically everyone in his life. But yeah, like me watching this, I, I feel so much for Shinji in a lot of these ways, even though it's, it's somewhat at odds with my experience, but it's like so much of that tension, I think speaks to some of the queerness that is both implicit and I think explicit as the series goes on in what's going on with Shinji and like his attempts to live up to and like meet some sort of expectation. I I think that's very uh, beautifully stated encapsulation of this extremely important relationship between Shinji and Rei that we haven't really, like, there's just very important things we haven't, we're not going to get to discuss in detail this time, but um, that is a central part of the series, I think. Um, yeah, I I think in part I'm okay with us not talking about some of it, just because we'll be able to continue to talk about Rei and Shinji. Yeah. Um, and some of it might also be more fruitful when we can talk about other things that get revealed, so. Yeah, and um, just as, like, one as as one more comment like on all of that the this by like taking a scene from like maybe like a slice of life like coming of age teen comedy type trope and then like 
reinserting it here um, with the foil of like this high school experience that like that it is that other type of genre it's like okay yeah this scene would would happen in that type of movie but it's happening here in this silent hill room with all of this context and like fucking blood and shit and ray like her reaction as well it which you've touched on but like is very important where it's just like the normal like the normal reaction of in this scene the coming of age story would be like oh the girl's so embarrassed and blah 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 and like you know like oh my god like blah 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 yeah yeah we would have like the karen boob grope moment of like oh blush someone like touched me am i getting a uh, feelings for this person and no like ray is just like completely indifferent to this and is basically just like get off me yeah um and I think it's just another way of the series being like this thing that's happening between like Shinji and Rei, like where they are as people is so far removed from this like other type of reality and experience of like sexuality that is maybe like, you know, more standard, like, like where they're, where they are is just so far removed from that. And by, like, deploying this, like, comedy trope in this really jarring way and evoking that, like, you know, that type of scene, but then having it recontextualized, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like, I feel like the gears are grinding and it's drawing my attention to, like, this is really weird and, like, this is not that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, uh... That, um, you know, I, I know we have notes on, like, Ray as well. I don't know if you want to discuss Ray's character, like, more um, later on. Yeah, I think the, there's a there's a couple things that I want to, like, quick draw out here, just because I think it's, it might be useful for people if people are watching along, either for the first time or they're re-watching and, like, taking into account what we're saying like if this is helping them reframe it i don't know maybe you're like yeah i already know all of this shut up um <laughs> but hopefully hopefully we're helping some people like think about and reframe evangelion in some way um i think the there's a few things so one i didn't mention yet um there are some things from yoshiki satamoto that actually come up in like the appendix stuff with the manga that are interviews where he talks about the character designs that he created and especially if you are like reading along the two main characters that he's talked about is his design for Shinji and his design for Rei and that one thing that is like intentional to Shinji's design and also again even if you're like you authorial attend like I don't care at all about that it is also a thing that's like literally in the text of the show is that Shinji's eyes are drawn the same way as all the female characters which is distinctly different from the way that all of the male characters eyes are drawn and so very intentionally like Sadamoto talks at length about how Shinji was designed to be feminine and jokes that if you take Nadia from Nadia Secret of the Blue Waters and you just like give her a haircut and like give her a flat chest and just like try to like boy her up a little bit 
then you have Shinji. Um, but that it's like basically the same face. It's just a slightly more masculine body and like the shorter haircut. And that in fact, Shinji's design originally had longer hair as well. And he was actually afraid that it looked like too much like, oh, this is just a like shoujo protagonist. <laughs> um, and so like that intentionality of like, we want something, we want Shinji to feel effeminate and we want to like, you had a note about Gendo and these glasses covering the eyes and this idea of the, like the eyes are the window to the soul that like specifically we want Shinji to have what we draw as female eyes is I think a very significant statement, like even from the point of we're starting to design a character for a show at the very beginning of this being about gender and some like queer effeminacy, however you want to read it. You know, I, I have a joke tweet that I've made in the past of like, what are your, you know, what are your pairings from like your favorite pairings from media. And there's one that's a picture of Ray and Shinji and it's blue haired trans girl. Can't believe she has to talk another one through being an egg uh, <laughs> or like going through cracking an egg. But like that so much of my read of both of these characters is like tied up with my own transgender feelings and that like a lot of Ray's is coming from this perspective of, I think as we go on, like having some greater understanding of like, this weird, like not quite womanhood that I'm being given or that I'm like accessing. Um, and then Shinji, like having this denial of it and trying to figure out like, where do I fit? But that I think also just tie into like broader queerness, like the big thing that is shared between cis gay men and trans women is still this, like, like both of us get called faggots because we are failing in masculinity in some way. And so like, I think that is intrinsic to even the way that Shinji is drawn. And what is intrinsic to the way that Rei is drawn is a lot was put on in terms of her being, like, ghost-like. Like, I believe that you can actually even read her name. Like, one of the potential characters that you could write that could be read as Rei literally just means, like, ghost or spirit. Um, also, the original uh... concept... Also zero, right? Yeah. Um, nothing. Yeah. And uh, the original concept was, I believe it was actually a song that like the, the name translates to like the girl in the white bandages or whatever. Um, but that was like, like Sadamoto listening to that song and having this image of this girl who the first image that you see of her is in bloody bandages and that she is someone who is like destined to be hurt and to be fragile. And that is like, that is the core, like that Ray Ayanami was the original design for Ray Ayanami was someone in bandages and that the normal, I am not injured in bandages was the secondary design of this is when she's no longer bandaged. <laughs> is I think also key to like, what are they doing with Ray? They're creating someone who is like fundamentally being harmed by those around her and like trying to survive and struggle through it and dealing with that. And again, I think is like intrinsic to her design. Also, there's a, a joke in there of why does Ray have red eyes? And he, Sadamoto says it was like, I first made the design and I was like, 
she's such a nothing that I need to like do something that feels distinctive. Um, but then also that she's so quiet and I gave her red eyes that it has this like unintended effect, but that now feels like integral to the character of whenever she looks, it seems like she's like staring directly into someone. And that like also became a part of her design. And I think as the show went on and especially the manga, like became further a part of eyes being important, I think to a lot of Sadamoto's designs and it being like, this is this particularly off putting or unsettling, like, red eye color that is suggesting some sort of um like deeper like piercing gaze that she might have so those are kind of what i want to say here and then also just this line of when shinji's like i don't get it why do rei and gendo get along and ritsuko's like well rei is like gendo neither are very adept and like adept at what adept at living um (laughs) (laughs) which is like it's just one of those lines where i'm like it feels important to call out whether or not we end up fully agreeing with it but (laughs) yeah i think a lot of the um a lot of the statements that characters make about ray are Maybe not that one. Like, I'll leave that door open to decide, for us to decide later, like, what what we think about that. But especially the statement of, like, I think it's... Um, Is it... I think it's Misada think it's, who says that she she has no personality. I thought it was... Uh, uh, God, I, it's Toji, not Koji. I know I messed that up already. Yeah. Um, oh think, yeah he says something too i thought it was toji but he was like he's like speculatively being like oh she probably just has no personality and it's just kind of like yeah some it, of this I, is also me because i know the lines are slightly different in the manga and it, instead of saying mental instability they say that she was too emotional and then i i know in the manga misato says like ray emotional like that makes no sense like she doesn't have any emotions um yeah so the which, scene I'm, yeah <laughs> well the scene i'm thinking of is like part of that gym like playground scene where they're like ragging oh Gigi yeah because they're like oh do you have a crush on ray and he's like well i just don't something or other about like i don't understand why she's always so alone or something and he's like oh she probably just has no personality and again like i didn't really get into this but with my reading of like the anime series and how the narrative style how i think it is working you don't have a lot of like externalized like interiority of characters or like yeah. characters don't really get to define themselves. They don't like externalize their own like self-definition really. And, and especially Ray, especially um, Ray. And in the absence of like that, the fact that there is this like statement, it, it stands out as being so conspicuous and in its conspicuousness, it is like, that statement is irony. <laughs> um, yeah. Like it, it, it seems like evident that this is a statement that is going to be like ironic. 
just because it's so calling attention to itself. So yeah, um, characterization. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll probably yeah, go well, into my. We will, we will get into it more as we go on because there's going to be a lot more with Ray that what we can talk about as it continues. And like, I think both of us would degree disagree strongly with the fandom read that sometimes exists of like, Oh, Ray is just a doll, which we kind of alluded to when we talked about Ina in 08th MS team. Um, yeah. Yeah. We just, <laughs> we can just like, we're so we'll, not, we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah. We're, we're like, that's not our read. Yeah. So um, all I'm going to say is if you have a character who frequently has scenes of trauma that are around a doll, then say to another character, you are a doll. That's probably projecting and not actually a true statement. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we'll get to it. Um, yes. Yes, we will. Do you have anything else or should we wrap? It's oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we should wrap. Um, yeah. Next time. um I we're pushing all my theory bullshit into next episode. So tune in next time for some patented Connor bullshit. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that you're probably going to bring more theory here. And I know that's going to happen because I'm not going to bring any fucking Freud. I, I don't know if you know about this about me, but I actually kind of hate Freud. Uh, <laughs> many, many people do. Um, I, and... I hate Freud for very specific reasons around the way that Freud pathologized, like that the current queerness is indebted to Freud, like current understandings of queerness, because Freud like contextualized it within the sense of identity rather than actions that are performed, which is kind of what like the church previous to Freud conceived it of. And that has important things for like the ability to uh organize around identities and yet it was specifically within the context of pathologizing queerness in a way that i think like queer stuff has always like so much of trans stuff is still tied up in like the pathologies of like gender dysphoria and things so that's where like a lot of my hugest issues come from with freud but also, I love like Foucault and Foucault pulls from Freud and does other things. I, yeah. I like a lot of stuff that came after Freud. I, I just hate Freud himself and like his core philosophy. Um, and I think the best f- stuff that has happened after have been people who have like really radically reframed some of Freudian, like Freudian stuff. Um, yeah. But I, I, uh... I feel like you might have more Freud to talk about than I would. Um <laughs> You you may be relieved to know I'm not going to uh I'm really not gonna get like super deep into it, I don't think. Um and I'm not really going to talk about like Freud specifically. Um yeah. even though I even though I, I think it's relevant, I I I too don't wanna get like bogged down in a Freudian look, Ava is obviously engaging with like, as I said, psychoanalytic theory to some extent um and freud specifically but i also think other thinkers are very relevant um specifically the one i'm going to bring up next time yeah and yeah freud um 
it's one of those things too of like if you want an explicitly freudian reading of evangelion it's fucking out there you'll be able to find it it's like a very common reading of evangelion because anno was also reading a bunch of freud yeah so there you go i didn't even know that and uh like it you know it, it's it's just even aside from the like hedgehog dilemma thing it's um it's yeah, pretty I obvious i don't know because so like the the story is that like halfway through production Anno got into freud and that's why like the second half is like quote-unquote different and there are multiple issues with that one is like hedgehog's dilemma appears like here mm-hmm. <laughs> two i sometimes like you you all can go back and listen to the conversation we just had i'm not sure i fully buy oh it's just a normal monster of the week anime until you get to the second half <laughs> yeah no it, yeah <laughs> um no um it, anyway you know, yeah. So, will... Shall we shall we throw to the end? <laughs> yes, let's throw. Okay. Um so join us next time where we'll talk about some totally normal uh just like completely chill monster of the week anime episodes with episodes 6 through 13 of the show. I forget if I said next week it will be in 2 weeks. Next episode 2 weeks from now. Uh if you want to write into the question bucket and you know I, I feel like I said something about communist readings of something at some point. You know, any of whatever you want. And now right our inbox in. is flooded. Yeah. <laughs> Ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Thank you to Export Audio Network for hosting us. You can go to exportaud.io or patreon.com slash export audio. Uh, you can, like, that's where you would go to support the network, but also if you want to check out other shows on the network, you can, like, find them there so even if you're not planning to donate still go check it out you can follow us at ghost divers pod on twitter or i just realized i have not posted the last two episodes to our instagram but um technically i also have an instagram um for for the podcast you can follow me at fox mom nia you can also follow me at garf read aloud uh where can people follow you connor you can follow me at Rabelais, R-A-B-V-L-E-A-I-S. And uh, I, I think that's it. I think so. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Let's clap and then I'm going to go to bed.
Okay, let me, <laughs> let me do time .s. Refresh. Okay. Um, you want to do 21? Okay. That felt good. It did a weird skip, like, between... Like, it basically went from 18 to 20, but then I got 21, and I, like, feel like it did it right on time, so I think it was good. Okay, we can do it again if you want. Sure. <laughs> okay, uh, 48. Okay. All right. Good night. <laughs> good night. I'll, I'll text you uh, tomorrow. After, after we've had a, had, a, had a decent night's sleep. Good night. Night. Bye. See ya.